Didn't you just love the picture? I did. But I just felt so sorry for the creature. At the end. Sorry for the creature? What'd you want him, to marry the girl? He was kind of scary looking. But he wasn't really all bad. I think he just craved a little affection. You know, a sense of being loved and needed and wanted. Judge for Dinner 622. We're getting fishy with our favorite aquatic universal monster. First, a gill man is found in the Amazon, a creature from the Black Lagoon. Next, Gilman is turned into a SeaWorld attraction in revenge of the creature. Finally, scientists try to domesticate the Gilman, and the creature walks among us. There are many strange legends in the Amazon. Even I have heard the legend of a man-fish. Welcome to Junk Food Dinner, episode 622. This is the podcast where each week we scour the internet, video stores, and cable television, searching for the most outrageous and interesting cult films. In Ohio, I am Kevin Moss, and I'm joined by my California co-hosts Parker Bowman in the 559 and Sean Byron in L.A. This week, it's a show that I've been wanting to do since the beginning of time. It's Creature from the Black Lagoon, and we're going to be taking a look at all three Creature from the Black Lagoon movies, starting with the original from 1954, Revenge of the Creature from 1955, and the Creature Walks Among Us from 1956. But first, gentlemen, creatures, how's it going this week? I know I'm excited, but let me ask you, what's your uh, level of excitement about these Creature from the Black Lagoons? Did you, uh, do you have any Creature from the Black Lagoon, let's say, uh, memorabilia in your house at all? Do you have any fondness for this creature? Kevin Moss, I'm positively sopping wet over here with anticipation for this episode. Um, <laughs> I can't claim to own much in the way of, of Gilman merch, although I'm very much open to it. I, I feel like I should fix that. Um, but, you know, he's such a, a cool classic monster, and I have never seen the sequels before this week. So, wow. Um, yeah, that's exciting for me. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, you get older and you realize, like, in terms of classic monster movies from like the first half half of the 20th century, it's pretty. I mean, there's some exceptions like low budget stuff like Piatras Blancas, but it's pretty much just the Universal monster movies. There's not a ton of them. I claim to be a, a horror fan. I should see all of these fucking things, like no exceptions. So anytime I get a chance to do these, especially if it's one that I haven't seen, I'm hyped. But uh, I do have a special fondness for this Gilman that we'll get into later. I, you know, you guys know me. I'm not. I, well, I wasn't a Universal's man until I would say I am now. Now, thanks to the show, thanks to the last couple Universal episodes we've done, I've I've seen a large number of them, and I would I would say I'm familiar enough to be a Universal's man. But the first time I saw the, any of these creature movies was only like a year ago or something. So I really, he's, yeah, he's not like um, you know a guy that I've loved since childhood. I, I think my what I most equate with him is the version of him from Monster Squad, which is fucking awesome. <laughs> That's true, yeah. But yeah, Creature from the Black Lagoon is kind of a weird one in the world of the Universal Monsters. I mean, he's and and we'll talk more about this when we get into the movies. But he's you know he's the little brother of the group. He came he came way late. You know, the other monsters are from mostly the 30s and 
early 40s. Uh, Creature doesn't come out until 54. And he's also an outlier in the fact that he's not based on any existing novel or play or even folklore, really. I mean, there's obviously been folklore about you know sea creatures and whatnot, but it's he's a wholly original universal creation. He's not based on any previous work, which I think also makes him cool. And, you know, like I said, being a product of the 50s, he always seemed like the, uh, you know, the rock and roll monster of the group. He, you know, he was the guy for the the boomer generation. This this ain't your granddaddy's monster. Here comes the creature from the Black Lagoon. It, it also mm-hmm. feels like we're moving into that transition between horror and sci-fi that happens in the 50s, right? Sure. Where, like, this is not a gothic, you know, supernatural beast. It's it's a creature to be studied by scientists. So it's it's much akin to the, you know, the 50s sci-fi stuff. Yeah, it's not taking place in some stuffy old castle with, you know, British dudes and, you know, different time periods. Like, this is happening right now. We got chicks in swimsuits. We got, you know, tropical locales. And we got a, a full-suited creature. Well, and I think this kind of paves the way for a lot of creature work that comes later on down the line, like your aliens and predators and things like that. Yeah, totally. And mm-hmm. I would say even Jaws, I think, takes a lot of cues from this first creature movie. But I'm glad yeah. that they you know, incorporate him into the Universal Monsters family because, I mean, there could be a, an alternate universe where these movies come out. Nobody decides to lump them in with Dracula and Frankenstein, you know what I mean? And they just kind of exist as like a separate little thing that goes less noticed. But, you know, I think the fact that he's in with this crowd, you know, that they, I guess, you know, probably the big part is that they got packaged together on early television, right? And and that's Mm -hmm. probably why they're so closely associated. But I think it works. You know, I I like the diversity in in the the monster gang, and and he certainly brings it. He's he's very unusual. Yeah, I like that he's a part of it. I think... In recent years, the Medellin and Mutant has kind of been mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of added to the family, too. Yeah. Um, when when would you say, Kevin, that like the Universal Monsters, like obviously like this creature put a little bit more juice into them, but like when when was it over for like that that run of of films? About when the creature ended in '56, because yeah, they had Universal had This Island Earth, which came out in '55. And it's funny, we'll talk about it when we get to the Creature Walks Among Us. Two, yeah. two of the main stars are from the Silent Earth and in that one. And um, But yeah, like Sean was saying, this is kind of the time when they were moving more into science fiction. So there's still, you know, some kind of classic monster stuff happening, but it was more in the realm of science fiction and like atomic bomb stuff and incredible shrinking man kind of stuff. So it was just a little bit more of a transition. But by the time... I, I feel like by the time the 50s were over, that was pretty much the end of universal monsterdom. I wonder if they almost kind of sunk their own battleship in a way by going to the comedy route too quickly. You know, in the 1940s, there's all these Abbott and Costello meeting monsters, and it's like, it's tough to be scared by a Frankenstein when you know that, you know, he could uh, be subject to such easy pratfalls. You know what I mean? Well, and it's interesting, though, because even though the movies were kind of not being produced so much after the 1950s. I feel like Monster Kid like fandom really exploded in the 1960s with the introduction of these shock packages on TV with with kids could see horror movies on TV and then the introduction of things like Famous Monsters of Filmland and uh various you know like the model kits and various things that weren't available before that I think really kind of heightened the 
iconography of the monsters from like just movies to, you know, cultural icons. I wish that we had like detailed box office information available for like the early 1900s because like the the thing that I would love to know is like the age makeup of a horror crowd going to see a Frankenstein or a Bride of Frankenstein. Was it mostly you know, full-fledged adults were teenagers getting in there. Like, cause yeah, we think of monster kids and, and obviously in the eighties as well with the video store kids, horror movies kind of skewing younger, but I wonder, was that always the case? I'm, I'm probably the data is not even there, but no. Well, and I think back then, I think movies weren't as segmented by that kind of demographics. I think just everybody went and saw anything cause they're just like, Holy shit, moving pictures on a screen. <laughs> like they didn't even care what it was, it, you know, I feel like there was, you know, grandmas and little kids all saw Frankenstein, probably. And it was a beautiful world for it. Yeah. Yeah. And there wasn't a rating system back then, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, it just got passed. Yeah, so there wasn't anything to, like, let you know, oh, no, this Frankenstein's scary. Keep your kids out. Yeah, and and a lot of times it was, you know, packaged with, like, newsreels and... um, cartoons and other stuff so it was like you know even if you weren't into frankenstein like okay i'm gonna go in there catch the news maybe i'll stick around for whatever the hell this frankenstein is but you know like i'm sure it was much more broad of demographics yeah catch the news eat some cracker jacks smoke a pack of cigarettes in there exactly (laughs) but yeah outside of uh getting deep into the creature from the black lagoon this week how have your weeks been any uh exciting adventures in movie going or movie watching uh yeah i've had uh, you know a couple of exciting things i watched um ex machina again you know you guys remember that hit movie sure oh yeah from your from your garlandman yeah i love him so i had to go back and watch that and uh still good i would say still one of the better movies uh in the world i would say um yeah outside of that i oh i watched licorice pizza you guys did you guys see that i did this movie's like garbage did you not like that movie I did, I did not really like it, no. I very much did not like it. Yeah. I I also kind of didn't like it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't yeah. like what? Like I just kept thinking like I hate these people. Why am I <laughs> <laughs> Why am I with them? I mean, yeah, I, I, I think Alana Haim is a good actress and I look forward to seeing her in other movies, but not the character that she was playing here. Yeah, I think I thought both the leads were fine. I thought Philip Seymour Hoffman's son actually did a pretty good job. I just didn't care about it. And I thought the sets were good and I thought it was a good kind of time capsule. And, you know, I wanted to like it. It was just like, it just seemed like there were a bunch of vignettes that never really had any resolution. And I guess it was like kind of just trying to recreate, you know, the, the haphazard nature of being a young person. But I don't know. It just never felt like it went anywhere. It just felt kind of pointless. Yeah, and and not to kind of echo what what Parker said last week about The Passenger, but I feel like you can get that 1970s time capsule with a movie like Boogie Nights where things happen and it's watchable, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, like the whole time, like Boogie Nights feels like it's about something like very much and like you're wrapped up in the emotion of the characters and one of them happens to have a waterbed. But this movie was just like, yo, pinball and waterbeds. Yo, Barbara Streisand. Yo, it's the seventies. Check it out. And it's like, well, what else is there? Like, you got anything else besides just remembering the seventies in this movie, or what? It's almost like PTA sat in the crowd at the New Beverly for the past decade and just took notes of the like cultural touchstones that people giggle at in the audience. You know what I mean? It's like this movie is gonna be fucking full of rotary phones. Yeah, 
It does seem like that. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't too enamored with it. I'm. It makes me feel better that you guys also felt that way. Yeah. Well, speaking of directors that might be past their prime, I, I went out to the theater this week and saw the latest offering from our old pal David Cronenberg, Crimes of the Future. Have you guys wow. seen that yet? No. <laughs> I have not, no. I'm, I may be out on Cronenberg. His last couple of movies weren't all that great. I feel like the, the buzz on this has been uniformly negative in my friend circle. Well, to be completely fair... I didn't see all of it because I did fall asleep multiple times in the movie, (laughs) (laughs) which I I think doesn't speak too highly of the movie itself. Uh, I had also taken a a pretty high potency edible before. before As a matter of fact, I smoke pot. Which, you know, if you're going to go see David Cronenberg, you know, weird body horror, I felt like that was appropriate. But yeah, it just kind of stunk. I just, uh, I wasn't too intrigued with it. Hmm. But... That's a bummer. Yeah. When when was the last time that he made a movie that you loved? Was it? Did you like Naked Lunch? I think that might be the last one for me. Yeah, violence is like a five star banger. It's okay. I don't know. That's that's like his transition into the kind of movies that I don't want him to be making. You know what I mean? Like, what are you doing making these dumb like thrillers? Like, make me a fucking movie where a guy pulls his own intestines out and strangles somebody with it. You know what I mean? That's what I want from David Cronenberg. I think that actually happens in History of Violence. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, give me the Videodrome scanners, fly Cronenberg any day of the week. But yeah, but it's been a while. It has been a while. What about you, Sean? Any exciting watches over in your neck of the woods? Oh, not too much. I went to a Dodgers Mets game this past week. That was fun. Had a couple Dodger nice. dogs up there in the stands. You know, sat out in the sun. Got a, a little bit of a sunglasses tan. You ever get one of those? Where now oh, it looks sure. like I'm a, I'm a panda or something or a raccoon, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. You didn't put on any SPF before getting to the that baseball game. It's been a long time since I've played around with sunblock, but I feel like maybe I should. Yeah, baseball games are where I've gotten the worst sunburns of my life. Yeah. I remember one time I went to a Cleveland Indians game and d- like didn't think I needed sunscreen because it was like overcast and it was raining. And then as soon as we got there, the clouds parted and like the sun was just beating down on us the entire game uncovered. And I got so sunburned in that same night. I went and saw Jay Retard play. Wait, Flint. what? You saw what? Jay Retard. He's You're like, being warned. You can't say that kind of words these days, Kevin. Come on. That, that was the man's stage name. I, I'm not making that up. And now we're he's gonna dead, have, so he can't gonna, be canceled. <laughs> oh, he's been canceled by God for using that kind of potty mouth language. Yeah, but it was a punk rock show, and I was sunburned to shit. And like every uh, people were moshing, and every time someone even just touched up against my skin, I was like, ah! So I just had to move <laughs> to the back of the crowd like an old man. That's funny. Yeah, I've, I've certainly made the mistake in my youth of like not wearing a hat outdoors and then being outdoors for multiple hours. And then you guys ever have that top of the head peeling off sunburn? That is the fucking worst. I've never had that happen, but I have a pretty thick head of hair. Yeah, well, enjoy it while it lasts, Kevin Moss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now that I'm shaving my head, I'm real worried about that. Like any, I like walk around with like an umbrella now, like I'm from the Victorian <laughs> age, like trying to avoid any head sunburns. It's a good look for you, though. Well, thanks. I like it. It's fun. You know, you get to use one of those little shavers that's like concave, you know. It's fun. I don't know. 
Shaver? What do you mean by yeah. little, little shaver? What is this? Are you George Bush? What do you think? You don't use like a little shaver to shave your head? Oh, I see what you're saying. I thought you meant in conjunction with the umbrella. And I'm thinking you're outside walking around shaving something. What's oh, going on? No, I'm just talking about having like a short shaved head of hair. Oh, I understand. Yeah. In general. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about like, like a clippers kind of scenario. That's what you're using. Uh, not clippers. I'm using like the ones that like you put like, you know, it's like got like five little uh, razor guys and they like. It's like five little one. clips that you clip on. No, they're not like no, they're not like clippers. They're like they're shaped, uh, you know, like you can fit a ball in there. It's like concave, or convex, whichever the one is. You're concave. Talking fl- you're talking a floby now. No, it's like head shaped. You know, it like contours to the roundness of your head. Oh, so it's like one of those things that the lady would get a perm in at my m- mom's uh, hairdresser. <laughs> I mean, but it's, kinda, but it's cutting yeah. your hair. A little bit. It's a little bit like that, but smaller. Man, that's frightening. Can you imagine that? You just you pop in your head in there. There's a bunch of blades spinning around. That would be fun. It's it's little. Next time I come over, I'll bring it. I'll shave your head for you. It's fun. I, th- I think we we've got a sequel to Doctor Giggles coming out. You know about his his <laughs> wife who's a hairdresser with his chair. Anyways, it's a good system. Well, you guys want to find out what kind of systems the folks out there in Junk Food Dinnerland have been using to shave their heads this whole time? Absolutely. Yeah. We've got a full mailbag here at Junk Mail, so uh, let's get into it. Our first call comes to us from a friend of the show. You know him. You love him. He's got a theme song. It is. Hey guys, it's your old buddy Kyle from Kentucky. I just want to call in. First thing I want to say is that, uh, yes, Kevin, that weed that we bought, uh, talking about that story that I told, I think it was a couple of weeks ago now, but yeah, that weed was shitty. It was, <laughs> I, I can't remember if it was 500 or $750 we get for a whole pound. Wow. It might have been more than that. I don't remember. That's been 20 something years ago. And yeah, it wasn't much. I, I actually bought it to sell on campus at Morehead State. <laughs> and like, <laughs> People bought it like crazy at first, but they would only buy it at first, you know, to get weed. But then they wouldn't want to buy it again after that unless they run out of places to get it. So I had trouble trying to unload it <laughs> out of my dorm room. But uh, you guys also talked about watching uh, – talk about your first concert. My first concert was uh, actually Ricky Nelson when I was a little baby at Camden oh. Park. You know, you talked about Camden Park but that's my mom, one of my mom's all-time favorite singers. I was a little baby. But my first concert I ever went to on purpose was uh, Kentucky Headhunters and Hank Williams Jr. <laughs> uh, well, we went to see the Kentucky Headhunters, which is a pretty good group. I don't care what anybody says. But, but then you talked about on YouTube, you can go back and watch all these old shows. And I just found out that after you all said that, I checked, and I found out that I went and saw R.E.M. in 95 on the Monster Tour at Rupp Arena in Lexington. And it's the best show I ever saw. I saw Page and Plant the year before, which is my favorite group ever, Led Zeppelin. But the REM show was just was wonderful. And and I'm now I'm just found out tonight that I'm watching all these old videos from 1995 on the REM 
monster tour and it's 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 wonderful <laughs> but uh yeah guys the show just it, it's always awesome and uh sean rocks the house and parker's awesome too and uh <laughs> kevin don't want to go see danzig but that's all right i love you guys too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you, Kyle, for calling in. We love hearing from you. Uh, and thank you for the follow-up on uh, your amazing uh, pound of weed story from the other week. Mm-hmm. Much appreciated. I'd like to hear the follow-up on, on the quality of that weed. I had to figure buying a pound, probably not the best stuff. But, you know, that's how it goes back in the day. That's what you had to do before, uh, you know, you could get medical-grade quality stuff. But, uh, yeah, man. And... um Man, that sounds like uh, I, I think those are some pretty fucking rocking first concerts. You got yeah. Ricky Nelson at Camden Park. Even if you were a baby, that's that's pretty badass. Um, and then the Kentucky Headhunters. You know, all right, that's cool. Yeah. But with uh, Hank Jr., I mean, I mean, I guess this means Kyle was one of those rowdy friends that was coming over tonight. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? He was ready for some football. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I remember vividly wanting to go see that rem monster tour and that could have been my first concert and i could have had that as a first concert rather than hooting the blowfish but alas it didn't happen but that was that was a killer tour and i think that was like the last time that rem really toured like in full that would have come our way so yeah bummed i never got to see that but that's that's sweet I like the part where he, uh, you know, it, he, it sounded like he was going to say that Page and Plant were his favorite band. And, and I just like the idea of somebody who loves Zeppelin but hates John Bonham. You know what I mean? He's like, <laughs> finally, this is the band that I was waiting for. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, back in the 90s, yeah, Led Zeppelin wasn't exactly an option to go see. So Page and Plant, you take what you can get. Sure. It's, it's a wise choice. Yeah. Speaking of your REMs, uh, yeah. I, this reminds me of a time when I worked at Waffle House. It was like three in the morning and I was working and there's like this dude there and he was like a like a grungy type of a man, you know, like a college rock type of a man. And he like, <laughs> like I wasn't like waiting on him or anything like I was like on the other side, but he was like, hey, you come here. And I was like, hey, well, you know, what's going on? I don't know where your waitress is. You know, what's up? And he was like, well, what's your favorite REM album? Like, apropos of nothing, I wasn't wearing, like, an R.E.M. shirt or anything, obviously. And I was like, uh, well, I guess it would be Monster. And he's like, all right, you can go. <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> if I offended him and he didn't want to talk anymore or, like, if he just wanted the, the quick answer or what. But would that still, that, man. Would that still be your favorite? Um, I mean, probably. Probably. Just because, like, I've listened to it the most. And um, I don't know. It's got some, like, super jams on it. But well, it's weird. I mean, I don't think that's anywhere near like what the the critically the most critically acclaimed one is. But for me and you, that was the one that like came out in our adolescence, you know. So I think that's probably why it has a a special place for people our age. But yeah, I, I, think, I, well, I think I would go with Green for the same reason. Is like that video for Stand was just on MTV. You know, I feel like my entire childhood, like every day, it was it was on, and then. One of my uncles was like obsessed with REM and, and he had all these tapes and I would borrow his tapes and, and I loved green. Yeah. I mean, I think now going back, I think a lot of the earlier ones might rank up there for me. Yeah. Um, I like, mur- go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, murmur and document, you know, reckoning all great. Yeah. Those are all good. I think for a long time I was turned off by like early REM because 
Everybody Hurts was like not cool. And also Shiny Happy People was not cool. And like those well, every, were like the every, Everybody Hurts was later. Well, it was before Monster. Like one album. Yeah. Or... I, I wouldn't call, uh, you know, losing my religion early REM. I'm, out of time, I think, is, is when you're dealing with like new REM, in, in my opinion. I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I just mean everything before like the like Monsters what got me into them. And so anything before that, I was kind of like all their popular songs were like kind of dorky, I thought. So I never wanted to go back further than that. And then when I did, I was like, oh, never mind. This is obviously awesome. But the early stuff is really cool. It's all like jangly and kind of, you know, it's it's lo fi in a way. And it's kind of I, I don't know. I, I really like like the energy of it. It's It feels so effortless, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that definitely the distinction between for me for like early REM and later REM is like anything that's on IRS is early REM. Anything that's on Warner Brothers is later REM, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I wish somebody would have warned a brother that that early stuff was good. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, now you know. Uh, but anyway, let's uh, check in with our next caller. It's our old fat pal from down under. It's Tom who has this to say. Hey guys, it's Tom. Uh, love and listen to you and stuff. Uh, I really think you did pocket dirty with that uh, whole eh, not being that into the endless. It's a fucking awesome movie. Uh, yeah, granted, you should probably watch Resolution first. I know Parker watched them, you know, the wrong way around, and that's all cool. But like, it was mind blowing for me to see the guys from Resolution turning up in Endless. And, uh, yeah, now, I love that movie. Uh, maybe it's just me. You know, maybe I'm just, like, high-concept sci-fi with, like, low, you know, oh, I, I guess, you know, values of, uh, you know, putting that shit through. But, like, it was fucking, you know, I loved it. And so, yeah, yeah, it's all good. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing you guys talk about the beyond. Um, that is going to be a wacky one, you know, because, yeah, it's another Italian horror movie that doesn't have the greatest storyline, but it is amazingly fucking atmospheric. And uh, so, yeah, hopefully you like that. And you'll, uh, the ending is goddamn brilliant. But yeah. Cool. Take care. Have a good one, guys. Cheers. Peace. So you're drinking alone. That's one of the beginning stages of alcoholism, you know. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Tom, for calling in. Uh, yeah, I, you know, listen, the endless it doesn't have to be for everybody. I appreciate Parker bringing it to the table. It just uh, didn't catch my fancy. Maybe I do need to see the other one. But like I said, I don't know. It's just there's something about this, like, heady, high-concept sci-fi. Just not for me. I'm a dummy. I like uh, low-brow, <laughs> aliens and suits sci-fi. That's my kind of sci-fi. I like this movie. Yeah, I know you do. That's why you brought it to the show. There's definitely some scenes in this that are supposed to make your penis hard. Well, no, that's not true. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you don't yeah. even like Pokemans. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a shame that you guys weren't higher on it because yeah, a lot of people were like hyped. It seems like in the Facebook comments and on Discord, people were like, "Yeah, the endless, let's do this." And then you guys, well, you more yeah, mostly I mean, you, it, Kevin. It was okay. I mean, I I liked it. I I, I mean, Sean I liked, liked it. Okay, yeah, he's cool. 
I'd check out something else from these guys, I guess, you know? Yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do Resolution one day. All right, or well. Yeah. Do what yeah. you need to do. Make yourself feel like a big man in front of the kids. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. All right, final caller of the evening. Another longtime favorite of the show. It's our old pal, The Fallen One. Who has this to say? Hey, Jeff, what you guys? It's The Fallen One. And I want to recommend you uh, six uh, hard rock and metal bands, pretty much from all around the world. All right. The first is Ailstorm. Not Hailstorm, Ailstorm. And they're a Scottish uh, pirate metal band. Oh, no. And uh, mm-hmm. probably all their songs are going to make you laugh, including a song called Mexico, where they talk about seeing a donkey show. Uh, the second one from Germany is called Avantasia. They're kind of like a metal opera uh, band. And they did a song called Dying for an Angel, collaborated with Klaus Mine from the Scorpions, who rocks you like a hurricane. The third one is called Crematory. They're kind of like a goth industrial band. And they did a cover of uh, uh, Black Celebration. They're also from Germany. Uh, the fourth one is called Ghost, which is a Swedish band. And they're kind of unique because uh, the lead singer actually wears like a pulp outfit with uh, corpse paint, while the other guys uh, wear a mouthless uh uh, demon masks. Uh, uh, the fifth one is called Kissing Dynamite from Germany. And if you uh, seen any episode of Peacemaker, you probably heard their song Six Feet Under. And lastly, from Norway, we have uh, Wickwam, which also, if you've seen a Peacemaker episode, their song Do You Want to Taste It is their main uh, theme song. So that's about it. Uh, you Shelby loves it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Fallen One, for calling in with the recommendations. I'll be completely honest with you. I have I'm not familiar with really any of these bands. I've heard of Ghost, obviously. They're they're really really popular, right? They're like they like sell out stadiums now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah they're big. Had yeah, you heard although, of pirate metal at all as a genre? No, I didn't know pirate metal was a thing. It's got so, its own it, Wikipedia page, which I'm looking at right now. It's kind of shockingly uh, lengthy. Yeah, not. I wouldn't be surprised if you said there's a Scott or there's a pirate metal band called Alestorm. Guess where they're from? I think Scotland might have been my first guess. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know Avantasia from Germany. I don't know Crematory, um, but yeah, I think if I had to listen to any of these. I think I'd check out this crematory. I like more on the goth industrial side. I think that'd be fun. You know any of these bands? Kiss and Dynamite? Does this does that ring any bells for you? I didn't yeah. know any any of this. That's that band that Mike and Sawyer were in? Oh, yeah. Kiss and Dynamite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I liked that one. Um, yeah, I know. Ailstorm. I've, those guys rule. I think that they're a lot of fun. Um, and then Wigwam, I... I only know from Peacemaker because they do the theme song, and I like I haven't listened to any other albums. But um, also, they make me happy because they there's like some weird story about them where like they got dropped from the record label like two days before Peacemaker came out, 
and then Peacemaker came out and then everybody like fell in love with the the song that's the theme song and it, like it was like number one on the Billboard charts or something like that. So I I think that's funny that they got dropped and then they become like this huge band uh, overnight, which is a funny a funny thing, a funny turn of of fate, I think. Who would have predicted that Parker Bowman would have known about these uh, weird European metal bands? Of all people, I don't know. This is surprising to me. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, well, I don't know all of them. Ghost is pretty good too. I think I, doing I better than me and Kevin. Ghost, yeah. yeah. Well, I fully admit that this is way outside my comfort zone of music. I barely listen to metal at all, let alone very specialized metal. <laughs> But yeah, love it. Love the recommendation. So if you've got any pirate metal recommendations or want to call and tell us about times that you got drunk or uh, chased by the cops or anything like that, uh, pick up the phone and dial 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. Or send us an email at jfdpodcast at gmail.com. But where's the fun in that? You want to pick up the phone. You want your voice to be heard. You want to be part of the show. So give us a call, 347-746-JUNK. All right, that being said, let's get into some nerd news. From the global resources and junk food dinner worldwide, it's time for Nerd News. Uh, The first piece of nerd news that I have is the long 30-year wait is almost over. That's right. Phil Tippett's long-awaited stop-motion, what some people are calling a masterpiece, Mad God, is set to premiere in just a few weeks on June 16th uh, on streaming service Shudder. It will also be uh, playing theatrically uh, for that same week in some select lucky theaters, uh, which I'm going to try to see this theatrically, um, but if I can't, I will... Certainly settle for watching it on Shutter. For those of you who do not recognize the name Phil Tippett, he is a special effects and stop motion animation uh, guy. Uh, most notably, he has worked on films such as uh, Dragon Slayer, Return of the Jedi, RoboCop, Willow, and Jurassic Park, providing uh, visual effects um, and winning uh, many awards for said visual effects. But uh, you probably but, know him best, Kevin, for his work on the Rancor from Star Wars, right? Well, yeah, Return of the Jedi. That, that's. Uh, oh, was that in your list? And I was just too yeah. busy preparing to say that and try and slam dunk on you to even <laughs> listen to what you were saying. Okay. Yeah. Anyways. But he also did Starship Troopers, uh, you know, some work on that as well. But anyway... Uh, sometime around the time of RoboCop 1988, uh, he began work on a self-funded, self-produced, stop-motion, uh, kind of weird, trippy, dystopian um, hellscape world called Mad God. And it has been 30 years in the making. He has been working on it just on his own uh, over the last 30 years, I mean, with help. And he's also, uh, been funding it through, uh, things like Kickstarter, but at long last, this project that a lot of people, um, have been talking about and speculating is going to be available. And I've, I've seen the trailer and I'm super hyped on this mainly because this is just the kind of movie. I mean, when you see the trailer, it's got that very weird stop motion vibe of something like a, uh, uh, Brothers Quay or the Svankmeyer movies or like a Tool video or even like the uh, weird stop motion 
stuff that you would see in the bumpers on MTV in the 1990s. It's got that just very weird, creepy, goopy, like, I don't know, stop motion vibe that I just love. And I never thought people would be making again. Well, and, and it's, prob- it's different from what we see from companies like Leica, you know, who who make, you know, Kubo and, and the strings or whatever and, and these things, and you know, that are Coraline that are cool, but don't have that organic feel that I think the older stuff had that you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. And obviously this is a labor of love and something that he's been doing for 30 years. So there has been zero studio interference and it's just one guy's mad creation here on the screen. And, you know, I, I don't know if I could tell you even a little bit of what it's about based on the trailer. I don't know what the plot is. I don't care. I just want to see this. I just, from a someone who loves stop motion animation and just weird, movies like this again it just feels like a movie that you never thought they'd make something like this ever again like this it's time had come and passed on movies like this but well and and they i mean they didn't to be clear right it, it had to yeah. just be this one guy you know right yeah so phil Tibbet just turned 70 years old so uh, almost half his life he's been working on this and yeah i'm excited to see it so i'm gonna like i said i'm gonna try to catch it theatrically you can go to um, madgodmovie.com and see where it's screening over the next week, couple weeks, but uh, if you if you don't see it theatrically, it is available to stream on Shutter starting on uh, June sixteenth. And so, uh, yeah, have you guys seen the trailer for this, or even just seen some stills? I, I read a pretty cool article in it this week on uh, in a Rue Morgue magazine, and Mark Marin just recently had Phil Tippett on his show talking about it. Um, but yeah, I'm psyched, man. I. Uh, I'm ready for this. Are you guys as excited as I am for Mad God? Hell yeah, dude! I you know I saw the trailer when it came out. It I think it came out like last year or something. It's it's been a little while, but yeah, um, yeah and, and, it, and images have been floating around for a while too. Obviously yeah. worked on for thirty years and yeah, it's it's probably hard to uh, to keep this under wraps for that long. And you know you're, you're shooting it over a thirty year stretch. You might as well show a little bit of what you're working on. So yeah, I mean I've I've heard about this off and on for many years you know i, I love phil Tippett. you know uh, i love the rancor i love stop motion i mean pretty much from gumby on up i mean any kind of stop motion has some level of appeal to me it just feels you know otherworldly in, in a way that appeals to me maybe because i'm not satisfied with this world but um yeah this looks really cool i'm super hyped i will get another uh, month of shutter because I'm, you know, currently paused on it, but yeah, I'm gonna sign back up and watch this for sure. Yeah, the trailer looked interesting, so I think I will probably be watching this. But uh, I just watched one of his movies, uh, coincidentally, like a week ago, that fucking sucked, called Starship Troopers Two. So uh, I don't know. I, that soured me on the whole deal. I don't think oh, I have high. What, what did he do in that movie? Just he like effects, it. right? No, did he? I didn't know that. I didn't know he was doing that. I'm pretty sure he directed the whole thing, and and it it was a real stinky movie. So, well, I mean, but to his credit, though, in in his defense, like no one could ever make a you know how do you live up to Starship Troopers and Paul Verhoeven? So, and it's it's yeah. almost a completely different art form and medium making a live action film versus a stop motion film. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we'll well, see. we'll see. It, and. I, I doubt that was exactly a passion project for him. It sounds like that's probably something he took probably just to get some money to fund mad God a little further. Cause I mean, that was like <laughs> a fucking made for TV movie, you know, and he's not exactly known 
as a director. He's more a visual effects guy. Yeah, it, it looks like, like I said. I don't know if this Trooper Two was the only thing that he directed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, you know, the the uh, the effects and stuff are cool in it. So, well, and that's all you can really ask for from from an effects guy. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'll watch it. Yeah, hey, watch it. Let it into your heart. Uh, Sean, if you can see this, if you if you have any interest in seeing it uh, on the big screen, it is playing at the Lemley Monica Film Center in Los Angeles. Ooh, okay, duly noted. We'll see, but that's. I mean, that's. I got to drive on the Ten West Freeway, Kevin Moss. Well, hey, I don't. That's not my problem. Past the four hundred five <laughs> interchange. Come on now. You you figure that out on your own time. Yeah, you've got ways. Yeah, it's true. You've got the ways and means. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of movies, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, perhaps you guys have heard about that, uh, has hired Maria Bakalova in an undisclosed role. Perhaps you guys don't know her by name, but I'm sure you know her as the person who out-Borat-ed Borat in Borat Part 2. She played Borat's daughter, and she was by far the best part of that movie. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, so this sounds intriguing to me. I don't know who she's playing or anything like that. Perhaps it's, you know, she'll be in one scene, but like she fucking ruled in that movie. So good fucking actress. <laughs> exactly. So putting her in this movie seems like a good fit too. seems like James Gunn has like the kind of, uh, sense of humor that, that will benefit her. So, uh, do you guys have any interest in this actress and or guardians of the galaxy three? Yeah, I have interest in this actress. I, I like you. I was impressed with her work in the Borat sequel, um, and have been kind of curious, yeah, what she's been up to since then. Uh, but I'm less interested in Guardians of the Galaxy three after Guardians of the Galaxy two was a bit of a disappointment for me. Um, but I'll probably still check it out, just based solely on my goodwill from Guardians one. But yeah, after after the second one, I'm I'm not as hyped on Guardians of the Galaxy as I as I once was. Yeah, I, I feel pretty much the same way as Kevin. You know, I thought she was good in the Borat movie. Curious to see how does that translate into other projects. You know, Guardians one was pretty good. Part two less good, but still a fun time at the theaters. Uh, my overall enthusiasm for not just Marvel but superhero movies in general is extremely minimal so i don't think this tips the needle enough in the direction of me actually going that i will but uh maybe if there's other i feel like there was some other casting news around this movie that did have me more interested but i can't now remember what it was maybe it was howard the duck uh he was in he was in that or in the first one well he was on like a cameo at the end right um well yeah well he was in yeah he was in uh avengers endgame real quick at the end but he was in the first guardians movie in the background somewhere too oh yeah he's he like in prison or something yeah oh and I'm he was talking, in the second I'm talking like as an actual like featured character yeah yeah he was in the background hanging out in part two too but yeah they haven't done anything big with him yet which is shocking i would expect a, a disney plus show or something yeah i'm, I'm sure they're working on it well, uh, speaking of things that people are working on, um, I've got some nerd news here, and it's well, it's because Rob Zombie just can't have nice things. That uh, we've got this new announcement of a twisted new series. That's what the press release says: a twisted new series 
from what twisted mind? Well, from the mind of Tim Burton. Uh, I'm talking about Netflix's Wednesday, which is a new series that's going to be premiering on Netflix in the fall. Uh, they tweeted out some promo materials for this thing. It's Wednesday, of course. You know, if you, if you didn't put it together, this is an Adams Family uh, TV show that Tim Burton's uh, putting together. Um, you know, in direct competition with Rob Zombie's Monsters Project, <laughs> hence his frustration. I'm sure he's just kicking dirt at home right now. But uh, yeah, they tweeted out some photos and a very short uh, little teaser trailer kind of a thing. Not really even a trailer. Uh, but a video of uh, this Wednesday character uh, portrayed by Jenna Ortega, I guess is the actress. Um, there's some some casting news as well. Uh, Luis Guzman is going to be playing Gomez. Uh, I like Lu- Luis Guzman, so cool to see him working again. Catherine Zeta-Jones as Morticia. Uh, Christina Ricci, who played Wednesday, of course, you know, in the 90s movies, uh, is also going to be appearing, although I, I don't have a, a character name for her yet. Um, they described the series as a sleuthing, supernaturally infused mystery charting Wednesday Adams years as a student at Nevermore Academy. Um, attempts to master her emerging psychic ability, thwart a monstrous killing spree that terrorized the local town, and solve the supernatural mystery that embroiled her parents 25 years ago, all while navigating her new and very tangled relationships. So... Uh, I guess the people behind Smallville uh, are collaborating with Burton on this, uh, who I guess is going to be directing at least some of the episodes. Um, it's not much to say about the very short teaser, except that I thought it was fucking hilarious that even in this like 15 second promo or, or what it, whatever it is, they found a way to do that trailer thing where they have the ominous, spooky, slowed down remix of a song. But this time mm-hmm. it's just the finger snaps from the Adams Family song slowed down, which is so ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I'm also surprised to say that of these two projects, I think we have a better shot of Rob Zombie's Munsters being better than Tim Burton's Adams Family, which is a wild thing to say considering. Uh, Tim Burton was the guy who was originally going to be making those Barry Sonnenfeld Adams Family movies until uh, he got too busy with the Batmans. So, uh, but I guess that's you know the the state that we're in in 2022 is that somehow I have more faith in Rob Zombie's filmmaking abilities than Tim Burton's. But did you guys see this? Do you have any thoughts on this? Is there one of these two projects that you currently have more uh, faith in, or do you think they're both going to be awful? I, I did see this. I, you know, like you, I have more faith in the Rob Zombie monsters at this point. I, to be honest, I don't know. I, I am kind of curious to see Tim Burton do his take on the Adams family, but this doesn't seem like the right fit. It seems like this is kind of like a, and I would be curious to see how this whole project came together, but it feels to me like this is, you know, some boardrooms attempt to cash in on like the, the, young teen goth girl market you know like we need to move more units at hot topic can we put a movie together um yeah get tim burton throw some money at him he'll do it uh but yeah i don't know this isn't for me even if uh, under the best circumstances even if this turned out great i don't think i'd be interested in this i love those i love the adam's family show and i love the movies um but and you love louise guzman yeah louise guzman's fine but i mean i i haven't even really uh been interested in checking out those animated ones which i apparently are you know kind of more faithful to the original charles adams cartoons but even still i i don't know this this is a ship that sailed for me i think 
Adam's family is no longer really something that I care about. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I probably won't be checking this out one way or the other. Yeah. I don't trust Tim Burton and I don't want like this weird updated, like Wednesday Adams in college solving mysteries bullshit. So, so I probably won't watch this. Uh, the girl who plays Wednesday was in scream four and she was like kind of charming and probably the best part of that movie. So, um, seems like good casting, I guess, but, but yeah, I just, I'm not into this, but I, but you know, it does make me more into Rob zombies monsters. Like you said, like (laughs) I, I feel like I want Rob zombie to win this fight. Did you guys see anything else exciting coming out of Netflix's geeked week? This past week, they had an event called Geeked Week, which is the most awkward fucking name for anything ever. But I guess that's their it's Netflix's Comic-Con or whatever. Oh, yeah. They got that shitty Sandman thing coming out. That looks like Twilight or something. That's going to be the worst fucking garbage ever. Like I like I'm not like a big Sandman fan. Like I read him a little bit in uh, high school because Sam Keith drew the first like seven issues or whatever. Yeah. And like. I don't, like Morpheus is supposed to be like ethereal and dreamlike and he looks like he's made out of like mist and shadow and he's just like a a normal dude in this fucking TV show. <laughs> like it looks horrible. Oh, um, uh, again, it, you know, it sounds like a boardroom attempt to uh, to court that teenage girl audience and get money Netflix, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We all know that teenage girls are the biggest spenders, right? So <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I did want to mention two Blu-rays coming out this week, or three actually, that I think uh, might be worth your dollars and attention. The first one is Human Lanterns, uh, a movie that we did on the show, the Shaw Brothers Hong Kong uh, action slash horror movie that we did. I really liked. Uh, is getting the uh, Blu-ray treatment from the uh, folks at 88 Films. Um, so it is Region 2. You will have to import it, but it does have a beautiful new slipcase with brand new art by Kung Fu Bob O'Brien. I mean, who wouldn't want artwork by Kung Fu Bob <laughs> O'Brien? And a double-sided poster and a new uh, 2K scan. Um, so yeah, I'll probably be picking that up. I like 80, what 88 um, Films has been doing with a lot of their Shaw Brothers releases. Uh, and then uh, stateside, Kino Lorber has two releases that I think are worth your time. Uh, they're releasing Stunt Rock, the classic Brian Trenchard-Smith stunt slash musical epic uh, that's getting a blu-ray release here in the states along with savage sisters and the 1974 super group of uh, gloria hendry from black belt jones and cherry Cafaro from too hot to handle team up to be the savage sisters and kick ass in the jungle you guys interested in checking out any of those releases well, I'm I'm just excited that it you know feels like the world's finally catching up to me over here because I feel like I've been saying for at least a week that I feel like uh, Stunt Rock should be released on Blu-ray. So <laughs> the fact that it's finally coming out now, I, I feel heard. So uh, yeah, I probably will pick up that Stunt Rock because I, I need those pixels. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm also interested in those pixels. Very nice. Well, while we talk pixels, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back. We're diving deep into the waters and getting into our first creature from the Black Lagoon movie. And it's the one that started it all, 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon. So stick around. Junk Food Dinner has done 600 episodes. The time that most people use to achieve successful careers, get money and start families 
Your JFD boys used to watch Neil Breen movies, Japanese ghoul films, and Dick Shark. Why not alleviate the JFD burden and send your boys some money? Go to patreon.com slash junkfooddinner and donate five bucks to get a monthly bonus episode. Or ten dollars to start picking the movies or one hundred dollars for exclusive nude calendars. Junk Food Dinner needs your help to alleviate its existential shame. skinny dipping in a deep, dark, out-of-the-way lagoon, you were probably really worried that some big old scaly monster was just waiting for a chance to swim up and grab you and hold you and kiss you and... Oh, sorry, I was just remembering last year's Fourth of July picnic. Anyway, here's one creature that's really clawed his way to the top of the swamp. The creature from the Black Lagoon. couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon, a throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. 
Welcome back to Junk Food Dinner, the first movie we're talking about on Creature from the Black Lagoon theme show is, of course, what else could it be besides Creature from the Black Lagoon from 1954, the black and white 3D universal monster jam that um, I'll say is one of my favorite movies of all time. Wow. Uh, and, and have you seen it in 3D? I have, and we'll talk about that, and we'll we'll, we'll talk about it now. Um, So this movie was at the height of the 1950s 3D craze. In fact, um, this is coming one year after it came from outer space, which was another universal 3D hit, which was directed by Jack Arnold, who directed Creature from the Black Lagoon. So it was decided that they were going to up the ante with this one. This was not only going to be a 3D movie, but it was going to be 3D and underwater, something that had not been attempted thus far. So it was kind of breaking technical ground with its 3d photography and it's, um, underwater photography. And a lot of people, when they think of old fifties, 3d, they think of the, the red and blue anaglyph 3d, which this was not, this was actually a, uh, stereoscopic polarized light method of 3d, which is actually much more effective and which which is basically like what we have today, right? With the kind correct. of grayish lenses on the glasses. Exactly. And but a lot of people, it, it was back then. It was a very specialized thing to set up. You had to have like you know multiple projectors and um, special screen. I think had to be yeah. more reflective or something. Yeah, and if it was off even just a little bit, uh, it would fuck up. Like the the illusion was broken and would be almost like headache causing. So a lot of people complain, you know, if you talk to somebody that may, might've seen this back in the fifties, they would say, Oh, the 3d sucked back then, but that might've just been the a factor of, you know, not having it set up properly by, you know, some fucking 16 year old at your local theater. Mm-hmm. But if set yeah, up properly, well, and I think this was also like a time of a lot of transition in the theatrical space because they're moving from, you know, standard uh, aspect ratios to widescreen aspect ratios and sound systems are changing and, you know, color is becoming more prominent. And I feel like there's just like a lot of stuff going on for these poor 16-year-old kids, like you're saying, to to keep up with. Yeah, but had you seen it in the 50s with a properly calibrated projection setup, the 3D would have been pretty fucking mind-blowing. It would be very much akin to the type of uh, 3D that we're used to in theaters today which um so i have seen in twice in the theater um recently a new 3d because they've gone back and they've redone the 3d in what they call the real d uh technology for modern theaters and i've seen it twice projected that way and it is really impressive i mean the way that it was filmed for 3d it really adds a, a crazy level of depth that it just looks fucking beautiful, and it's it's probably uh, even among like modern stuff that I've seen one of the most impressive three D pieces that I've seen theatrically, and that includes like I said everything that's come after Avatar and and things like that. And we're talking about a movie from nineteen fifty four, so I think the three D effects are actually very cool uh, if seen properly. And you know all the Blu Ray releases have it, the three D version, so if you do have happen to have a three D TV 
glasses and a 3D Blu-ray player, you can create it at home, but not too I, many people have that set up. I love hearing that because, you know, I feel I've never seen it in 3D. And, and I feel like you watch this movie and it doesn't have a lot of those, you know, Jaws 3D or Friday the 13th 3D movie uh, moments where it's like, a guy sticking a, a stick right at the camera, you know what I mean? Like, there's not too much, there's a little bit of that, but it sounds more like it's maybe in the underwater swimming sequences and stuff that you yeah. get depth and maybe it's more subtle. And, and I like that. I mean, yeah, I would love to see this in 3D. Yeah, if you get a chance to see it ever projected theatrically in 3D, it's it's well worth it because it is very impressive. And, and yeah, and, and like I said, I think the 3D gimmick of it has been very sullied over the years because they re-released it in theaters in 1975 with the red and blue anaglyph 3d which just always sucks they also had it on home video and would sometimes um, play it on tv with the red and blue anaglyph and that just sucks so people always like oh yeah the 3d and creature from the back was so cheesy but like no not the case it was filmed very you know well and executed well just was bastardized so much over the years but that being said, the 3D was a big gimmick at the time, and so they were capitalizing on that and their ability that they could now film underwater, which, again, was a new technique. In fact, some of the rigs that they used to film underwater were designed specifically for this movie. So they're kind of breaking a lot of new ground here and breaking a lot of new ground from a makeup effects standpoint with the creature from the Black Lagoon suit. Um, this was... Uh, designed well there's a lot of people involved but there's been a lot of talk about you know who deserves as much credit you know for this as possible uh, bud westmore took most of the credit originally uh, although it's been revealed over the years that he had very little to do with this he was just kind of the head of the the makeup department and just basically took credit for everybody else's idea uh, melissa melissa patrick a female designer was is widely now considered to be the the, the creator of uh, the designer, at least of the, the head of the suit. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's again for 1950 standards, a, a real achievement in, in special effects and costuming. Uh, you know, it might look cheesy by today's standards, but I still think it looks good. And by 50 standards, especially, and you can tell by how often it was copied and people tried to make, versions of this like you talked about the monster of piedras blancas and there's all kinds of creature from the black lagoon ripoffs that followed after this and none of them had a suits that looked even remotely as good as this so yeah i just think this whole movie is just a a you know amalgamation of of really good things you got a great director and jack arnold you got great uh creature effects you've got great 3d uh and underwater cinematography you got a really great score um, and I think it just all kind of comes together. And, you know, so anyway, if you've never seen this movie, and I think there's probably a lot of people that have, and I think, you know, as iconic as the creature from the Black Lagoon is, uh, especially people our age might not have actually seen the movie in its entirety. Um, but the general idea of it, it's, it's a lot like a King Kong kind of thing where uh, the scientists find at uh, the beginning of the movie, they find a, a skeleton hand of a, a, what they think is a bygone creature, you know, some sort of creature that lived before that was part fish, part man, uh, that lived on the sea. But they think that this, there's legend that deep in the Amazon that this creature still lives. So they, uh, these scientists, uh, charter a boat and go deep into the Amazon looking 
for this legendary creature. And among these uh, scientists, we have Dr. David Reed, played by Richard Carlson, um, a female uh, scientist, uh, Kay Lawrence, played by uh, Julie Adams. Um, and then you've got also Dr. Mark Williams and Dr. Carl um, Maya uh, in there as well. Then you've got, um, you know, the the guy, Captain Lucas, uh, played by Nestor uh, Paiva, who provides kind of some of the comic relief being the uh, the captain of the ship, but also kind of the voice of reason to kind of tell these guys what they can and can't do. But that doesn't really last because these scientists are bound and determined to do whatever they can to capture this creature, including, you know, dropping a bunch of roofies into the water, trying to flush them out only to kill all the, uh, the fish that live there. And, you know, the, the creature, uh, becomes enamored of course, with Julie Adams, uh, as she swims in the lagoon, and there's a, a very iconic scene where the creature swims underneath in tandem with her, watching her, and it's very, you know, it's 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 a very iconic thing, but it's also kind of a, a, a subtle allusion to sex, and uh, the the whole underlying thing is this creature. He's you know he's a sympathetic monster, much like the Frankenstein monster who didn't ask to be born. He was just brought into this world, doesn't know what's going on. Creature even more so. He's just a guy chilling in this lagoon and all of a sudden these asshole scientists show up and they start fucking up his, his pad. Uh, but you know, he, he sees this woman and he's never seen a woman before and he's immediately enamored and falls in love. Uh, and so it's a struggle between the scientist trying to capture the creature and the creature who maybe wants to capture Julie Adams and take her down to his underground layer to be his underwater girlfriend. Uh, but of course, the scientists, uh, with their technology and their power, overpower the creature and capture him. Um, but he escapes and, uh, and, and takes Julie with him. But will they get her back? Will they succeed? Will they capture the creature? You got to watch Creature from the Black Lagoon to find out. It is a tight running time of 80 minutes. Uh, and like I said, despite it being in black and white, I think it looks especially in modern, you know, Blu-ray, 4K restorations, looks incredible. I think, uh, like I said, I think the photography in this movie is great. Um, the 3D and underwater stuff, while might have seemed gimmicky at the time, I still think looks really good. Um, you know, this was filmed in mostly on universal backlots and in the, uh, in the deep swamps of Florida. Uh, so, you know, they never really went to the Amazon, but... I think they fake it good enough between backlot filming and uh, the Everglades of Florida. They they got some cool uh, they got some cool locations, and I think it all looks pretty good. Uh, I think the cast is fun, uh, but really, I think obviously the the achievements here are in the creature suit. Um, you know, obviously, famously, there were two different guys playing the creature: one for the swimming scenes, uh, who was played by Rico Browning, and then. Um, one when he was on land, you know, and carrying Julie Adams and stuff, uh, played by Ben Chapman, and they had to have two very different suits designed for those, you know, one for to look good out of water, one to still look good underwater, but still provide the actor enough mobility to swim around and do what he needed to do. 
there were no breathing tanks in that suit. So uh, Rico Browning swimming around, doing all that stuff underwater. He's holding his breath the whole time. He's got no goggles on his eyes. He's just opening his eyes underwater. That had to have been a hell of a fucking, at least, you know, for me, thinking about it, a claustrophobic <laughs> affair. Uh, so credit to Rico Browning for swimming around in that heavy-ass suit and not drowning. Um, but yeah, and so, you know, again, this is a classic Beauty and the Beast tale, um, you know, much like a King Kong. Uh, but I really love this movie. Like I said, I think it looks good. I think it's endlessly entertaining. It's a movie that I can watch over and over again. I'm never bored. I think it's paced really well. I think it looks great. I'm always, uh, Julie Adams always is super charming in her uh, white bathing suit. And I just think, you know, as as old school as it is, I I still think it's, uh, like I said, endlessly entertaining. I can watch this anytime. And, you know, like I said, The Creature from the Black Lagoon immediately was a hit. I mean, you know, this is not only something that was popular in theaters, but then, like I said, you can't think of a piece of merchandise that they haven't put The Creature from the Black Lagoon on. Any, everything from beach towels and t-shirts to toys and uh you know aquarium <laughs> supplies and pez dispensers and anything you can think of you put creature from the black lagoon on the cover of a magazine that magazine's going to sell it just it's a cool design that i think is immediately engaging with people and i think you know if you're like me you just like the look of it there's just something about that creature from the black lagoon that original design that, like I said, you can put it on anything, and I'll probably buy it. But I saw this movie very young as a kid. I, I remember getting The Creature from the Black Lagoon, um, the the Crestwood House monster series of books. The Creature from the Black Lagoon was one of the ones that I checked out of the library all the time. Before seeing the movie, I'd be like, I got to see this movie. And then it eventually played on TV. I remember they it was one of those ones they advertised, you know, get your 3D glasses at fucking 7-Eleven, and it's going to be playing at... Uh, you know, in 3D, but we didn't have a 7-Eleven near us, so I couldn't get the 3D glasses, so I had to watch oh, it. Oh, man, and UDF was not there to swoop in? No. Uh, so I had to, you know, watch it with the red and blue without the glasses, and I was like, oh, boy, this stinks. But uh, eventually I got to see it properly, and, you know, I just love it. Um, I've had, like I said, I've had a chance to see it theatrically um, in 3D. I've also seen it at the drive-in. Um yeah, anytime this is playing within a hundred mile radius of me, I will go see it. I love it that much. But uh, as someone who's not or maybe necessarily a super fan, I'm excited to hear what you guys think of the original Creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, I, I feel like I'm on my way to being a super fan, and I'm shocked that we didn't review this to this date. I was I was certain that we had already reviewed this or um, you know, I, I might have even suggested a Black Lagoon uh, before now, but yeah, um, I'm glad that we're getting around to this. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I have never seen the sequels, but uh, I did see this one as a kid, and um, you know, I've seen it a, a few times as an adult as well. Um, less than I've seen some of the other Universal monsters, like I've seen, you know, your Frankenstein's and your Draculas um, more than this, but. Uh, you know, I've seen it enough to remember most of it. I think actually we might have seen it together at the drive-in at the Skyline. Oh and yeah, and I think it was one of the movies playing in that aquatic monster uh, marathon that we went to. So uh, it was probably the last time that I saw it. Most most recently was then a few years ago, but it was pretty fresh in my mind. I, I forgot that this had that brief Criswell-esque narrator uh, in the introduction, which was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and also fun in the opening credits is uh, there's a part where it's, you know, it's fading between the, the names and the credits and it says producer William somebody. I don't remember his last name. And then it fades into director Jack Arnold. And for a split second, it looks like it says director Whack Arnold. And I love that moment. That's I mean, for me, <laughs> that's that's movie making at its peak. Um, never noticed that before until this week. Also, I feel like as a kid, I never noticed all these rampant sexual tension in this movie. And of course, you know, everybody looks at, you know, uh, the Jennifer Connelly-esque Julia Adams um, swimming scenes, you know, the, these underwater ballet segments almost that she's doing, which are, you know, very beautiful. And, and she's a very beautiful woman. So, of course, you know, there's some sexualization there. But there's just all this like weird like general sexual tension in this movie like between crew members man and woman alike you know man woman and monster like to be honest with you it's like you feel like at any point in time any two of the people on screen could just throw down and bone down and that's kind of exciting when you're watching a movie like this and and also you know something for the ladies this picture is positively teeming with barrel-chested lads i mean you, you can barely count uh, the volume of, of these barrel-chested men on screen. So a lot of fun to be had. Um, there's lots of fun little kind of goofy moments while you watch this that, you know, you can watch and feel like you're sort of like an MST3K uh, guy of your own at home, you know? Like, there's this point where they're they're talking about this famous Black Lagoon, you know, the, the locals are talking up this Black Lagoon. Oh, man, there's a Black Lagoon. And when they find it, you know, there's like this utter look of wonder in their eyes. And, and the soundtrack is like these beautiful string sounds that are kind of like, you know, in, informing you like, wow, it's the Black Lagoon. It just looks like every other fucking stretch of the Amazon they've been to so far. Like there's nothing <laughs> different about this Black Lagoon. So it's it's kind of goofy. Um, and then later on, you know, there's the part where they find that arm sticking out of the wall. And like this archaeologist guy is just like, yo, uh, just, you know, give me a minute. I got to take some photos and, and I'll be digging this out. You know, give me a minute. And what he means by that is that hold on one second while I just yank this right out of the wall. Like it's like the least professional archaeology maneuver you've ever seen. This guy, I'm, I'm certain, is not a real archaeologist, but um, that part's fun. Uh, there's a part where Kay is smoking a cigarette. Uh, leaning over the edge of the boat and she tosses the cigarette butt into the water and then the camera kind of pans down and reveals like under the boat there's the gill man looking up at her you know and it's supposed to be a spooky moment like oh shit you know we just revealed the gill man but to be honest like the way that it's framed and like the expression on the gill man's face it just feels a lot like that commercial from the 1970s where the native american dude's really bummed out that you're polluting you know what i mean with a single tear and so that moment's kind of goofy but, well, despite, but also, that's kind of an early environmental message that you didn't really get in 1950s films. Oh, well, absolutely, yeah. I think that is true. Uh, yeah, I guess that I guess that could be intentional that there is an environmental message. It, I I thought, you know, at the time, just watching it, that they're just trying to spook me with this spooky fish man. But it, it can be both. Um, and you know, despite the fact that there are these moments that I found to be a little bit goofy while watching this. Um, this movie works. It, it works 100%, you know, and not just in a, you know, let's laugh at this goofy movie kind of a way. Uh, it's really nicely photographed. You know, this underwater stuff looks fucking great. And there's tons of these underwater scenes. Like, they don't really skimp on that stuff. And even, you know, the on land stuff or on the boat stuff, a lot of it looks really cool. There, there's a shot that looks down into these um, into the aquatic cage that they've built for the Gill Man. And he's like looking up out of the cage. And it's like a really haunting shot. And, and maybe it's partly because the Gill Man has this face 
that looks like it says like I'm I'm a mistake and I should not be alive or something like this. Like he's got this real you know abomination kind of um, stare. Uh, but it's haunting. It's a really cool shot, and you know, it's a really cool Gilman. He, he's got a really cool cave as well uh, that kind of looks like the part of the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean ride uh, at the beginning. You know, after you go down the waterfall and you're just kind of chilling in a foggy cave for a, for a minute. That's kind of like the Gilman's cave. And uh, yeah, like you said, you know, they shot this mostly on the back lot, and then you know, the underwater stuff is in Florida. But I felt like I was reasonably transported to the Amazon. You know, it doesn't feel like the back lot to me. So it's impressive. I, I think this movie really punches above its weight. And I love the fact that you can kind of draw a direct line from King Kong to Jaws with a stop off at the Black Lagoon, you know, right in the middle. And, and I think it's, yeah, it's just a, a cool uh, progression in, in our monster movie history. So uh, if you ask me, I'd say the Gill Man is a chill man. That's just me. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that King Kong to Jaws progression, uh, I would say it happens even more in the second one. Like that one feels like oh yeah yeah it's just an amalgamation of, of those two movies. Um, well, that's that's the King Kong to Jaws 3D progression. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. So like I said, I I saw this for the first time like a year or two ago or something like that. Uh, maybe a little bit longer. I have no concept of time, but um, I was kind of on a, a universal kick. We'd been doing them for the show, and so I was a little bit interested in getting into some of the other ones. And, um, and yeah, this movie's a banger. Like it's um, all the stuff you guys said is all very good. The suit is like fucking insane, and would probably be the best fishman suit up until whenever they made humanoids from the deep. Um, like it's just insane that they made like a suit this cool looking well and not only that cool looking but it's it, it's got a lot of cool tricks to it like there's that part where he's walking and breathing and the gills are moving you know they'd like to put little bladders in there to make those gills move like something that like you know a lot of sci-fi movies at the time were not taking that level of care into their makeup effects yeah yeah that part's cool and and it's uh, functional because this guy could swim around without sinking to the bottom somehow uh, of the lagoon, which uh, is good. And then also, like it looks real. Like I mean, it looks like a real creature. Like I mean, you know, they. I think they put a lot of care into thinking about what a creature like this would look like. And so he's got the webbed hands, and he's got the gills, and like weird, you know, fish-like lips, and in the eyes that kind of like reflect the light and stuff. Um, so yeah, so he's, he's super rad. Um, I like the black and white in this. Uh, I think that if this was in color, it would look too fun, you know, like it would look too, too, too exotic and fun. And you'd be like, Oh, I would love to swim in that blue water and be under that, you know, warm yellow sun. But in black and white, it kind of gives it like a kind of a moodier feel, especially underwater that I, I think works for it. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, color was not out of the question at this time. You know, um, This Island Earth, which would come out the, the next year, was filmed in color and stuff. So they were filming stuff in color, and they had, dis- had debated whether or not to film this in color. And they ultimately settled on black and white for budgetary purposes. But I think you're right. I, I, I can't imagine this in color. I, in fact, I think it would be to its detriment to be in color. I don't think it would be... A, maybe even lumped in with the universal monsters if it was in color it might be considered its own 
separate thing. But yeah, I think it works way better in black and white. Yeah, yeah, I like the black and white. Um, and then even even the creature himself, I think it it puts a little. Even when like I mean, they just show him, you know, very quickly. Like they just here he is. And so I think being in black and white still kind of gives him a little bit of mystery that color probably wouldn't. Um, I like the cool evolution stuff at the beginning. That cool like science uh, prologue. Um, it's interesting to hear dudes in 1950 talk about evolution. Um, yeah. Well, I think it was all just an excuse to do that big bang in 3D to really show the audience uh, yeah. right out the gate. Like, you want to see some 3D motherfuckers? We're just going to blow up the earth <laughs> right your fucking face. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I was shocked to hear that this is 3D or it was, you know, meant to be 3D because, like, like Sean said, like they don't really do any goofy stuff. Like no one like does a yo-yo in your face or like anything like that. Like I guess there's the one scene where the guy yanks the the fossil out and like it kind of goes into the camera, but that's like really about all the gimmicky stuff I could think of. But I think that there's like one harpoon in like the final five minutes that you know is pointed towards camera briefly. But yeah, it's it, like I said, it seems very subtle to me. Mm-hmm. Um. I like the the scene that you mentioned, Kevin, where he swims underneath her. I thought that was like just creepy. Like, makes you think of like you know last time you swam at a lake or something. Like, just some bullshit being two feet under you, like just watching you or something. Um, the creature when he gets set on fire, that's amazing. Like, is that that's got to be like a an a like a visual effect, right? Like they didn't set this guy on fire. Cause like it has kind of an unreal quality about it. Like the way that the fire looks, do you know was, how they did was that? Was that this one or I thought that the next one had him on fire. That uh, one does too, but this one does. Well, part, well. part three certainly does. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, this, uh, they, they do set him on fire. Yeah. Briefly in this where they, yeah, they threw that lantern on him. Oh yeah. And he, and then he jumps into the water. Um, no, as far as I know, that was all real. I mean, yeah, they just okay. poured a bunch of kerosene on the suit, set on fire, and said, hey, jump into the fucking water when it gets too hot. <laughs> okay, maybe it just looks weird being in black and white. Maybe that's why it looks strange, like fire in black and white rather than color. Because, yeah, it looked like, I don't know, like they like painted on the the negative with like white chalk or something. Like, I, I don't know. It just looked strange, but it might just be the black and white. Um I like the cool scene where I think it's that scene where he's on fire and then he retreats and like you just see um, like little bubbles and like ripples like going super fast away from the boat. I thought that that was really effective to show like because like they can't really like when he's on camera, the creature, they can't really show him like swimming super fast because it's just a dude in a big heavy suit. But to watch him from above where you can't see him like they could have like, you know. Uh, champion swimmer go 20 miles an hour and it you know looks effective like he belongs in the sea so i thought that, that was cool um when they get down to the cave there's a really cool fake bat that i i really enjoyed <laughs> um one thing that i don't care for about the creature and i think that they kind of fix this in uh later movies specifically part three is when he's out of the water and I mean, even when he's in the water to a certain degree like he he doesn't really move like an animal necessarily. Like he, he kind of walks when he's out of water, like Frankenstein, like he just puts his arms in front of him and kind of lumbers around. And, um, and so I didn't, I don't know. I didn't care for that. Like, it seems like, you know, maybe they could have made him move in a way that seemed more animalistic or seemed more fish like or something like that. But that's, that's not a huge gripe. I think you may be the first person 
on this planet to ever try to state the claim that the Gill Man looks better in the third creature movie than the first. <laughs> well, not not his look, definitely, but like I think in the third one he kind of like moves around more more animal like. Like in I this think one, it's, just, it's a different actor on land for that movie versus this one, right? It's the same guy in the water, I think, for all three, but a different guy on land. I think so. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Like the, in these first two, I think he just kind of like lumbers around like a, a wolf man or a Frankenstein or something. And so he kind of gets his own personality by the third one. Um, I guess maybe Wolfman doesn't lumber around, but um, yeah, but I think this is super cool. Um, creature is scary. I like the lagoon. I like Universal kind of branching out and giving us different kinds of monsters um, and then, like you guys said, like this is sort of that bridge from from Universal Monsters to the stuff that would come later, like you know, um, you know, all the sci-fi stuff, like Them and the Blob and stuff like that, like stuff that's kind of more science-based. You know, an Invisible Man's kind of science-based, and Frankenstein is to a certain degree, but but yeah, like this seems like kind of like the jumping-off point to to that true sci-fi '50s sort of stuff, and and I dig it a lot. Nice. Yeah. Uh, like I said, this was, was pretty popular. I mean, I mean, very popular at the box office. Um, and it was so popular that of course they immediately rushed to make a sequel and we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to be talking about that sequel. Uh, that is 1955's revenge of the creature. So stick around. For the first time in history, the famed Creature from the Black Lagoon comes to Chicago Television in the amazing effect known as 3D. Prepare now for the creature's appearance. Reporting into 3D TV Central from the aquarium, here's the son of Sven with further details. Even the aquarium can't display the creature in 3D, but you can see the creature in 3D with a color TV set and these 3D glasses that you buy at participating 7-Eleven stores while supplies last. See the creature in 3D. 3D TV comes to Chicago on Channel 32. <laughs> appeared with this crazy sound <laughs> my baby looked up kind of mesmerized and she gave a long moan much to my surprise did the most is the most i was number one fan yes i've fallen in love with this monster man You just wouldn't go where this guy has been. <laughs> he was going green hell on top of his lid. Just the crazier kind of mixed up kid. Then sort of stitched up by a sewing machine. But my baby baby says, Yeah, this monster's a dream. She's falling in love with a monster man. She's 
was weird, just a little unreal. Seemed kind of short of the sex appeal. He was dragging his chains and groaning his groans. Not really a guy that a girl should take home. When it comes to the scene where the monster should die, my baby broke down and she started to cry. Said this monster I love in a strange kind of whisper. He's my kind of guy, cause I'm Dracula's sister. study a creature that, by all the laws of nature, should have died a quarter of a million years ago. They dared to bring him back alive from his haunts deep in the jungles of the Amazon. They dared to put him on display with the other denizens of the deep while thousands came to marvel and wonder. You know, I, I pity him sometimes. He's so alone, the only one of his kind in the world. If anything goes wrong, you head straight for the surface, you understand? All right, let's go. They dared to study him, to probe him, to tempt him with the lure of a woman's beauty, thinking that mere chains could hold in check the primeval forces that surged and roiled within this strange being from the dawn of time. Hey, look, he broke the chain! junk food dinner the next uh, black lagoon feature tonight is going to be revenge of the creature uh, which premiered in denver on march 23rd 1955 why denver i wonder uh well, this was yeah the first one premiered in detroit why detroit <laughs> oh that's weird right I, I thought movies premiered either in los angeles new york or a location that's relevant to the movie maybe you know if you shot somewhere maybe you might premiere but who knows i don't know Anyhow, um, this was cranked up by Universal and Jack Arnold, the director of the first movie. 
um, within a 13 month span of of that first movie. Actually, this came out so pretty quick turnaround. Uh, like the first film, it was released both in 3D and 2D versions. But unlike the first, uh, it takes place mostly at a Florida aquarium uh, called Marine Land in Northeast Florida, uh, instead yeah. of down in the Amazon jungle. Just real quick on the 3D, uh, this came out in the in the year that had passed. Like Creature from the Black Lagoon was already kind of on the tail end of the 3D craze, and by the time Revenge of the Creature came out, it was very much on the decline so most people that saw this theatrically only saw it in 2d but it did get a a, a limited 3d run so if you saw it in 3d on its original run consider yourself lucky because not too many people did got that opportunity although i I think and correct me if i'm wrong uh, i think available now in 3d right on home video yeah that's good um you know, and uh, like I said, it's it's now in this aquarium instead of the Amazon jungle, and that's because the plot of this concerns two wildlife scientists uh, named Professor Cleet Ferguson, played by John Agar, and his student Helen Dobson, played by Lori Nelson. Uh, they're working at that aforementioned marine land uh, when a nearly dead gill man is sent there for rehab. You know, having been shot up with bullets at the end of the last movie. Which, by the way, there's a part in this movie where, um, you know, they're shooting at a bunch of fish in the water. And I turned to my wife and I joked, is this America's first school shooting? To which I received no laughs. It was (laughs) dead silence, much like it was right here. So Um, anyhow, um, they got to fix up this gill man and try and communicate with it or whatever. And, and, you know, learn what the gill man has to say or whatever, you know, because they're scientists and they want to talk with this gill man. So together with the ho- with the help of Joe Hayes, played by John Bromfield, who's another aquatic expert there at the uh, Marine Land, um, they try and do that. Uh, but of course, you know, Gilman hates cages and loves ladies, so it's only a matter of time before he busts out and tries to get his gills wet, if you know what I mean. Oh, and also, Clint Eastwood shows up on screen for the first time ever, I think. I don't, I'm pretty sure he didn't even do TV or nothing before this. Uh, to tell a funny joke about lab rats and then disappear for the rest of the movie. So it's pretty exciting. And, and you hear his voice first before you even see his face, and it's it's that distinctive Eastwood voice. So it's, it's a cool little part for him, even if it is 10 seconds long. <clears throat> Anyhow, I watched these three movies uh, last night, back to back to back, all three of them. And watching them in that way, uh, with this movie especially, it was very obvious like how many of the establishing shots of the jungle that they have at the very beginning of this movie were like shamelessly reused from uh, the prior movie. Like they're just just the shots, and and you know that's fine. I'm I'm guessing that you know within a 13 month span, most of these 1950s uh, audience members didn't remember you know the framing of a shot of a tree and a bird or something on a river. But for me, it was like oh okay, that's you can tell you know that this is. A little bit of a, a rush to production kind of scenario, but oh, I also absolutely. yeah. Well, and, but, and like I said, when you or like you were saying, when you've got you know less than a year to turn this thing around, you're you're cutting corners wherever you can. Yeah, which is understandable. Um, and I think you know, I think I think even part of three takes like a sh- a full shot of him swimming under water from the first one too. So. Yeah, and you know, given that these movies are all eighty minutes long each, um, you notice these things. I mean, they yeah. probably you know three percent of this movie is recycled from the previous movie, which you know it's it's noticeable, I guess. But it, 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 I, I honestly actually don't think that kind of stuff hurts it though. And and you know, watching these back to back, I also found that there's kind of a fun 
mindless quality to these movies. You know, it's sort of like pro wrestling where you can just kind of easily turn off your brain and just enjoy the sight of a rubbery underwater man drowning scientists over and over again. And, you know, I, I really love this Marineland setting for the sequel. Um, I love that this aquarium just already has a set of underwater shackles and chains set up to imprison the Gillman. You know, like, I guess they were doing some kind of underwater sex play down there or something. I don't know what's going on in this aquarium, but why you got those shackles down there? It's very weird. Um, the other thing about this setting is, and I guess this kind of ties in with the environmental message that we were talking about before, but I feel like in the 1950s, I don't think it was a common thing for people to be like critical of zoos or aquariums in terms of like animal rights. Clearly now that's a concern, you know, like even for myself, if I go to a zoo and I'll still go to a zoo sometimes, but there is that thing in the, in the back of my mind of like, are these animals being, you know, treated properly, et cetera. And, and certainly aquariums, I think we know, uh, you know, those those whales and stuff are not being treated properly. So um, I think there is a little bit of that in this. Maybe I'm being a, a little bit um, uh, generous to the movie, but I think there's a little bit of that in this in terms of how they're abusing uh, the gill man at this aquarium. And, you know, oh, kudos to yeah. them for getting there, you know, more than a half century before Blackfish or, or whatever. <laughs> well, totally. And I think that also portray in all these movies the gill men to be more or less the victim and the scientists yeah. are the assholes and in this one in particular because yeah. you know they're essentially just like torturing this thing they're like yeah totally with, with like a prod stick thing yeah they're just like let's let's dangle something in front of it that he wants and then when he reaches for it let's fucking zap him like what the hell is that what are you what are you even trying to do and I think that is probably this this movie's biggest weakness is just that I couldn't really vibe with these human characters. Like in the first movie, yeah, I mean, you can you can say that, you know, the Gilman is the victim in that and and he is, but you almost kind of I don't know if this is because I'm an American and there's like colonialism like in our blood or something, but you <laughs> relate to these scientists going to a new place and just trying to find out what's going on. Like, but that's not what this is. This is like this poor guy has been sent there. He's your captor, captive, you know, you've got him, you know, in a cage and you're, you're doing these kind of things to him. So they're just so unsympathetic in this movie that the humans um, that I did find that stuff a, a little bit laughable. But still, I mean, the, the aquarium's fun. There's an announcement at one point being made at the aquarium that says, this is an emergency. The Gill Man has escaped. And I fucking love that announcement. It's so fun. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, there's silly stuff in this. Like, you know, they feed him these tiny little fish that they, they send down to him in this big metal lunchbox. And it's like, dude's swimming in a huge fucking tank full of all kinds of giant fresh salmon and shit. Like, I don't know why he would want these tiny little sardines that you're sending down for him. Uh, and not to mention the fact that he's a freshwater animal being held in a saltwater enclosure. And I'm pretty sure those don't usually work out too well when you do that. But um, silly stuff aside, there's some, I think, le legitimately good filmmaking blended in here. Uh, there's a pre-psycho shower terror scene that I thought was kind of fun. I mean, it, it does stop short of of her actually being attacked by the Gill Man in the shower, but it was still kind of cool. Although, to be honest, maybe on reflection, maybe he was just looking for a fresh water source, you know, uh, <laughs> after being stuck in that salt water, you know, all week. But uh, probably my two favorite parts in this are there are a couple of times in this where the Gill Man is underwater, and it looks like he's just kind of waving at people who swim by him he gives them like a cute little wave of his hand and i thought that was fucking adorable and then later on uh towards the very end 
there's a part where a guy gets thrown into a tree and just thinking about it now makes me giggle to myself because this motherfucker <laughs> gets thrown into a tree like he's on a zip line or something you can kind of see the rope but he fucking flies across the screen and it's very fun so yeah overall this thing does have kind of the vibe of something that was rushed into production but i don't think it really suffers too much from that it's still fun enough you know mostly because of the gill man himself um of the three i think this mm, i think i don't know i I was gonna say it's my least favorite it's certainly not as good as the first one. I think probably these two sequels I like about the same. They both have, um, you know, ups and downs, but I, I like that they both have different approaches to the material as well. So, yeah, this this was great. Uh, not great, but great to watch, and I'm I'm very glad that I that I finally saw it. I also am glad that I finally saw this. Uh, and I mean, like I said earlier, it's like I mean, I you know, it's sort of that bridge between King Kong and Jaws. And I think so much um, that came afterwards kind of came from this, like in terms of like goofy sequels and like a lot of the stuff you'd see. Like, I mean, obviously, like there's that Jaws movie where they put Jaws in SeaWorld and um, stuff like that. And like, I mean, like the Jurassic Park 2, like this kind of feels like that. And like something like, I guess maybe all the Jurassic Parks to a certain degree um, kind of feel like this where you, you you try to tame this animal and put him on display for people but he goes nuts um yeah which obviously is from king kong yeah yeah true um but i mean in king kong i mean that's like a big part of king kong but here i don't it's like a little bit different like it's like they spend so much time at the aquarium like it becomes a character on its into itself like to where it's like it's it's like a plot point in king kong but they don't like he, I don't know. They don't really like dwell on it the way they do here and kind of build it up and build it up. <clears throat> um, but but it is from King Kong. You're right. Um, there's a scene in the beginning that I absolutely love. Might be my favorite scene in in any of these three, where it's like um, the the guys are in the boat and they're down there looking for the creature and they're searching around. And there's a shot of a bird on a log, and the creature just jumps oh, up yeah. out of the water. Grabs a bird, goes right back down into the water, and it's they, so. They killed that bird, though, right? I think they killed that bird, and and that's one. what you love about this movie is this animal torture. I hate birds. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I just want to see him get hurt. Uh, no, I mean it's well. A, it's scary. It shows the creature as a threat, and B, it shows him as an animal, which is kind of what I was missing in the first one, um, to to some degree. Uh, and here to just see him as a predator going after prey. This is what he does when people aren't around. Like when people are around, he gets horny for their women and tries to steal their women. When he's not, when people aren't around, he's just eating birds and shit. He's just an animal. Tickle your ass with a feather. And I think that that's so effective and great. Uh, so I love that scene. It's very early in the movie. Um, Another thing I like about this movie, like I went into all three of the, or I guess the latter two, not really knowing what to expect. I knew the monster was going to wear some clothes, but that's all I knew. <laughs> um, so I was really surprised that this has a Jason goes to hell opening where like, I kind of expected just a rehash of the first one, but now these guys come down, they fuck the monster, this creature up and they take him somewhere else. Like it's, it's like the beginning of Jason goes to hell. Like, and then we're, we're somewhere else the whole movie, which I think is um, a good instinct, surprising instinct uh, considering 
you know, there's all those universal monster movies before this. And it's like, you know, Dracula's in Transylvania, you know, Frankenstein is always dealing with crazy townsfolk. Like, you know, they, as far as I've seen anyway, like, you know, they all kind of follow a formula. So to see them already break away from the formula for creature part two, I think it's very interesting. And to uh, their credit, I mean, despite the fact that they do reuse a, a few, you know, establishing shots of just trees and stuff, you know, they resist the temptation to do like a full recap of the first movie, which I think a lot of low budget movies would do of just like we can burn 10 minutes by running highlights from the first film. Yeah, yeah, which is good they didn't. And maybe it's because of that quick turnaround that they didn't, because I mean, this I imagine part one was probably still playing in theaters when part two came out. Yeah, so, yeah, that could be. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good that they didn't do that. Um, he walks a lot scarier in this than in the first one, I noticed. Um, he, there's that scene where he escapes and he flips over a car, which fucking rules. Yeah, that car flip is awesome. Yeah, I love that. Um, and then there's that kid who, like, kind of cries in front of him and he doesn't eat the kid, which, and I, I mean, I guess he's more just concerned with escaping rather than mayhem, but I, and it left me curious as to why he didn't want to kill that kid but um i mean frankenstein frankenstein killed a kid let the creature kill a kid too all these kids are pieces of shit exactly um i liked a lot of the stuff kind of like what you were saying sean like the the commentary on these sorts of things like i like the juxtaposition between the creature and that dolphin and like they keep talking up about how smart the dolphin is and stuff like that i, I feel like they were trying to draw connections too uh, how the creature's enslaved, maybe this dolphin's also enslaved, um, kind of a thing. Um, and, yeah, so, yeah, I think this one's good. I think this one maybe is kind of funner in, like, a B-movie sort of a way. Uh, but they do have a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff about, um, you know, kind of nature versus nurture. And, I mean, I guess maybe they expand upon that more in the third one. But, like... There's still like there's still enough science there to keep you keep you interested if that's your bag. But I think that this one probably of the three works best as like just kind of like a a fun sort of B movie kind of romp. And so I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, I agree. I I think this is definitely a romp. Um, I think this is a lot of fun. I think you know, like you said, this is a way to take the success of the first movie and do something different with it take the creature out of the lagoon, bring him to the United States, bring him to Florida uh, and see what happens. And, you know, you, you know, you got the classic fish out of water, pun intended uh, scenario here where now he's not on his home turf. He's out of his element. And, you know, and I love the kind of meta stuff where, you know, you've got this giant creature from the black lagoon cardboard cut out, you know, outside the aquarium and stuff. And, you know, the town's gripped with Gilman fever, much like the real people of 1954 were, you know. Uh, I, I can imagine kids going nuts for this. And, yeah, I like how they pick up essentially where the first movie left off. You know, you can watch these two back-to-back, and it feels like they kind of go right into one another. I mean, you get the the reappearance of the the boat captain guy at the beginning, which I think is fun. I do think the casting is... On some hand, some cases an upgrade from the first one. Some cases a downgrade. Like I like John Agar as as the Professor Cleet Ferguson. I think he's cool. Um, you know, John Agar is a kind of a B movie staple. If you've seen Tarantula, The Mole People, Blade for 
the brain from planet Eros. He's a, a staple. So I think he's cool in this. Although I do think that Laurie Nelson as the lead is a, a, a bit of a downgrade from Julie Andrews. Um, you know, she's not bad, but she's just not as good. And she wears this weird, like little baseball hat kind of thing at the beginning, which really turned me off. I don't know what that was, but lose that hat lady. That that soured me on this lady from the start, but you know I guess they figured they had a, a, a brunette the first one they might as well go blonde this time around and see what happens. Um, and it turns out the creature he 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 doesn't have a preference he'll he'll go for either. Um, but yeah, creature looks good. They did redo the sculpt on the creature's face on this one, um, and it's not super noticeable, but it is a little, little bit different. The eyes are a little goofier, I think. I don't, I don't like the sculpt on this one as much as the first one, but it's not terrible either. I think it still looks pretty good. And uh, it's better than the next one, right? Yes. Well, and what the next one does is I, I applaud them for trying to do something different, but we'll talk about it when we get there. But yes, I I, I like this. In in fact, all, I mean, in my ranking, it, it, the first one is superior. Second one, I think, is, is very good, and the third one is is. It's just good. But I, I think they just get progressively worse. Not that any of them are bad. But yeah, this is fun. I mean, I think this, like I, like I was saying, kind of takes the everything I love about the first one and brings um, a, you know, a campy Americana quality to it, taking it to a Florida, you know, essentially kind of amusement park uh, setting. Um, and I think, you know, it, it it is fun. I mean, like you like you guys said, you got creature flipping over cars, running wild in the streets. You got Clint Eastwood making cameos. Um, I really like that scene where they're uh, John Agar and Lori Nelson are talking, and they have those little porthole windows, you know, into the tank. The creature swims right up and looks in, all creepy. I think they kind of. Uh, Kind of didn't they reuse that and and Jason takes Manhattan kind of? I feel like that yeah. was kind of a there's a porthole jump scare in that that it feels kind of reminiscent to this. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The creature in in the last one and in this one, like, or I think mostly the last one, maybe in this one too. Like he's always like sticking his arms through the portholes too, which is definitely a, a Jason takes Manhattan thing. He was always sticking his arms in portholes. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I think this movie is a lot of fun. I I have never had the chance to see this in 3D, unfortunately. I did get a chance to see it at the drive-in last year in uh, Pennsylvania. They played this as part of the Monster Bash uh, weekend, and that was a lot of fun to see this. Uh, this movie and the next movie uh, were both featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 during the sci-fi era. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's a tendency amongst uh, aficionados to consider the two sequels as kind of rushed, disposable, universal kind of B-movie runoff, you know, more for the drive-in audience, you know, mostly double feature kind of material where, you know, you know it's, it's B-movie stuff. Uh, but I, I think there's more in these sequels than people give credit for. Like I said, while they're certainly not as good as the original, I think there's a lot to enjoy. And if you like the fun and excitement of the original and you have not seen the sequels, I think there's there's stuff to enjoy here. I mean, like I said, it's not going to be as good as the original, but 
go in with the right expectations, and I think you can have have a good time. And I think this movie is certainly a lot of fun. Um, I think Jack Arnold uh, returning as the director, I think, goes a long way. Um, we'll talk about in the next one that Jack Arnold didn't direct. I think his absence is kind of felt um, when we get into the third one. Um, because I feel like this one and the first one share a lot in common where the third one kind of goes veers off a little bit more into left field, which again, I, I respect them for taking uh, some risks, but I think ultimately this one feels like the sequel that makes sense, you know, for, <laughs> from where they started. Uh, so yeah, I think this is a lot of fun. Yeah, totally agree. Um, also fun. I, I wanted to mention one moment in this, this has one of those classic, uh, spinning newspaper montages. So if uh-huh. you are out there putting together a super cut of them, be sure to grab this one. And I think it's so funny because it's it's at the moment where the Gill Man has broken loose from the aquarium. And so all the headlines on the top of these newspapers are, you know, like prehistoric Gill Man creature on the loose in our town. But still, like they found a lot of space on the front of these newspapers to print other stories about like local bridge construction and like tax law amendments and stuff like this. And it's like, I don't know, dude, I, I would think if there's a Gilman in my town, you give them the whole fucking front page, but I'm not a journalist. So, you know, I, I guess I don't know, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, if there was a Gilman loose in my town, he would definitely like, it would be the entire a section. Like we wouldn't even cover anything else that day. Certainly not local tax law amendments, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Get our priorities straight. Um, but yeah, much like uh, in the last movie, Gilman gets killed at the very end, quote unquote, killed in a very, you know, anticlimactic uh, way. But it doesn't last long because in about 13 months or so after this, maybe a, a little bit longer, but uh, it's the next year, 1956, uh, they put out another sequel that we will come back to talk about in just a moment. So stick around. It's the Battle of the Mini Monsters, introducing Frankenstein. Dracula and Creature from the Black Lagoon. The monsters with glow-in-the-dark features. Frankenstein is in a foul temper. Dracula flies in. Fangs bared. Creature surfaces, dripping with rage. Phantom shows his fiendish face. I can't look. Is he ugly? The monster battle rages on. It's a howl. The monsters with glow-in-the-dark features, each sold separately from Remco. I think I go lose my temper. 
They go charge me for manslaughter because this thing getting chronic, especially my neighbor monkey Eric. And his children think I'm a coolie, only building missiles behind me. When they meet me, son is a different thing. They will flock around him and start to sing. Ugly like your father, Mel. My son tell her, go to hell. My father have a good voice, and he is my mother's choice. And if he ugly, ugly is my father ready. I can't help believe me, I am definitely sorry. And the creature from the Gangla Goon is your father. No, I go tell me, mama, the creature from the Gangla Goon is your father. Never before was science so determined. From the deeps of the Caribbean to the underwater jungles of the Everglades, they baited their traps and gambled their lives to put a daring dream to the test. Gentlemen, the creature can be changed. We can make the giant step and bring a new species into existence. Here was the grimmest cargo ever to reach civilization. Was this a new being created by a miracle of science? Fire burned away the outer scale. There's a structure of human skin underneath it. Or was this a beast made even more frightful by a mortal mind, more powerful by human emotion? <laughs> the skills may grow back. Never. His features, his skin, they're more like a human's every day. back to the Schlitzy, the final Schlitzy this evening is The Creature Walks Among Us. This is directed by John Sherwood, who also directed uh, The Monolith Monsters and Raw Edge, two movies I've never heard of. And he had that forest. Oh, yeah, that's that guy. Now I remember him. Uh, this movie came out in 1956, uh, about a year after the last one. And in this one, uh, scientists find the creature again after him being shot to death for the second time in a row. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, I mean, long story short, they, they want to turn him into a normal human. We got all these weird ass scientists here, including a lady who just starts shooting sharks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they leave her alone for five minutes and she's just shooting sharks. <laughs> yeah. So I like I like the cut of her chip that she's a murderer. But these scientists, they they want to do stuff to this creature. They want to do some kind of like genetic bullshit. I don't know. The science in this one's like really dubious compared to the last couple. They kind of just want to turn him into a dude. And well, they kind uh, of happen upon that 
kind of by accident. I don't know if they necessarily that's their original intent. Well, that's probably true. The original intent, I think, is just to capture the son of a bitch. Torture. But then, yeah, then when he gets burnt, they realize that, like, when he starts to heal himself, that he's got, like, this layer of, like, human-like skin underneath. Yeah, yeah, that is true. So, yeah, so they, they discover he's got this human skin. They start pondering, pontificating. They wrap him up like a mummy. Uh, when he comes, they, they do some stuff to him genetically. When he comes to, he looks a little bit more like a normal dude. Uh, he's a little bit fatter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's weird that that happened. Dressed in clothes, which is very... This is what I've always wanted to see this movie for. A long time ago, Kevin and told me... And it's very weird the way that they shoehorn the clothes in. They're like, oh, his skin is much more sensitive now. See if you can sew him up some clothes. It's like, what? Like, I think I know what it is. It's Yeah, I don't want to live in this new world of weird skins. They just didn't want to <laughs> stare at that gross skin on the guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, they redesigned the mask to make it look more human, and I feel like they just didn't want to redesign the rest of him, so they are like, just put some fucking clothes on this guy. Fuck it. Uh, rather than waste all this time designing a new half-creature, half-human body. The new face looks pretty dumb. He kind of looks like uh, Lando Calrissian's friend, you know? The guy with Nian nub? The guy with the lips? Kind of looks yeah, like that I, guy? I think he kind of looks like... Uh... Louis Gossett Jr.'s character in Enemy Mine that we did recently. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That he does. That he does. I mean, the other way to say it is it looks bad. Yeah. Just, it yeah. looks bad. It looks pretty bad. Uh, so they, they're, they like, trying to teach him uh, how to be a good guy. Like, there's a lot of, like, this is the one where they really get into, like, nature versus nurture stuff. Like, one of the scientists, um, I think it's the dude from this, this island Earth. Um, well, there's two guys from this island Earth in this movie. Oh, I only noticed the one guy from this island Earth, the guy with the cool, deep voice. Yeah, no, both the uh, yeah, Cal and Exeter. Yeah, oh, okay. They're both leads in this. Uh, the guy that plays the older Doctor. Yeah, he was Exeter, and then and then. Oh yeah, yeah. Rex Reason, he's the cow from it yeah yeah the other guy's okay. jeff morrow and i feel like those two names jeff morrow and rex reason are the two most 50s sci-fi movie sounding <laughs> names ever made you know what i mean yeah that 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 sounds accurate um so so yeah so these guys they get into like a lot of philosophical quandaries about whether or not like the creature is is kind of born malicious or whether, you know, if we teach him kindness, will he be kind or is, you know, is he just kind of born without that and kind of, you know, uh, among kind of what's happening with these characters, uh, these questions apply to them too. Like we see that one of the guys is like real shitty to his wife and gets drunk and uh, I, I think kind of tries to to give her a sex abuse at one point and then, uh, at that point, the monster's had enough, so the monster chases him off um, and stops it from happening, which is cool. He's a solid bro. Um, so there's a lot of like interesting questions about that, whether or not like you know people can be rehabilitated, and whether or not they're uh, you know, or whether or not they're just you know, it's kind of chicken and the egg in terms of like what makes people cruel. Is a cruelty foist upon them, or are they cruel to begin with? And I don't know. I, I thought a lot of that stuff was kind of interesting. Uh, you know, a lot more interesting than. 
um, like that kind of ethical philosophical stuff was a lot more interesting than the science stuff. Uh, at one point, one of the scientists says um, that turning this creature into like a kind of a human guy would be a, a massive scientific milestone because nature hasn't created a new animal for 400 million years, which is like the least accurate statement of all time, I think. Uh, <laughs> so many animals came about in the last 400 million years. You know, all of them, I would say. I would dare say. <laughs> but um, so there's that. But uh, yeah, and then uh, I don't know, the creature. I mean, spoiler alert here a little bit. You know, the thing that I like, everything good about this movie comes in like the last 20 minutes. I, I yeah, think. Totally. Like, <laughs> it's kind of boring up until. Well, then. and they knew it too. If you watch the trailer for this movie, there's nothing in the trailer that from the first uh, sixty minutes of the movie. <laughs> that that makes sense because yeah, it's but all that, that last twenty does make up for it though, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think this movie's good based solely on that twenty, and yeah, it's fun to to figure out kind of like you know this the creature. Like at one point, there's a mountain lion that's stalking these sheep at this place that they've holed up in California and. Um, the the creature defends them, and you know they're kind of wondering, oh, did he just want to kill this mountain lion? Was he defending himself? And none of them know what we know that the creature was defending these helpless sheep. Um, and and I, I just love that scene. I think that's great. And then um, there's a real tragic scene at the end where he he gets sick of everybody's shit and leaves and looks longingly into the ocean. That I, I which, think is. Which- which he can't return to. I think that's like yeah. the real tragedy because th- there's a scene where he tries to escape and he tries to swim, and but now he's got because they they also discovered that he had lungs under his gills, which is very <laughs> convenient. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Well, did didn't you guys read it as he was going down on the beach to commit suicide? Because that's how I read it. Was yeah, know, maybe he was, was going to jump. Go- he knew that jumping into the ocean would kill him, but he'd rather die. At home than live in this weird new skin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gary take it oh. It's very tragic what happens to him in this. And and I'm kind of sad that he doesn't get a part four to kind of like redeem himself. Like it's sad that that's like the final final thing is him just being a sad guy looking into the ocean. I or I guess maybe fitting. I mean maybe that I mean all these maybe that's kind of what ties him into the universal monsters. The original ones more than anything is like kind of how sad he is specifically in this one. Um and how tragic his character is. Although he's tragic in all of them. Um De- also, definitely in this one though he's he's more of the tragic figure than the other movies I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And uh probably let the least horny in this one to some, to a large degree, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's another thing he has in common with the original monsters. This too. is what happens when you lose whack Arnold is that the horniness goes away. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I like his clothes. I mean, they look bad, but I mean, I like that he wears them <laughs> in summation. Who's got but, the better fashion sense, Gilman or Frankenstein with his vest? Uh, I mean, I don't really like that vest, so I got to go with uh, Potato Sack Gilman. <laughs> okay. Fair <laughs> enough. I think it's a toss-up. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, this is definitely the least good of these three, but it's still good. And, well, once again, kind of goes in different ways. I mean, I don't know if this is, you know, like I, I, the way that part two went from part one is, like, perfect. I don't know if this is the way that I would have gone in, like, a writer's room to to make the creature a dude, like a normal <laughs> human dude. <laughs> 
<laughs> but at least they're trying something new, and I respect that. So I think that this movie's fun. What do you guys think about it? Yeah, like you, I mean, I respect that they're trying to do something new with it. Like I said in the previous review, they brought on a new director, and I think that becomes evident, you know, I think when you watch this. It it feels like there's just a different tone throughout this um, than the first two. It, It feels a little outside the lines. But that being said, there is stuff to like in this. Um I, I do agree that it's very backloaded. I think the first half of this movie, besides the creature getting set on fire, there's really not a whole lot of action going on. It's it's all a lot of marital drama and science, phony science talk, and people arguing in a boat. And yeah, it's it's kind of boring up until the last twenty minutes. But like Sean said, I think those last twenty minutes do kind of make up for it because. There is a lot to like in those the, that final act, especially, um, you know, when it comes to the creature and the action and and the, uh, you know, it's kind of like what you've been waiting for this whole time. Uh, but it is a weird choice, like you said, to me. <laughs> a lot of weird choices were made in this one, from the makeup to just like you said, just the idea of making him into a dude and the fact that he has. Like this is very convenient scientific thing where it's like, and under the 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 scales is skin, and under his gills are lungs. All you had to do was just burn it away, and there's almost a man under there. It's like, how? Who's buying this shit? I mean, well, but it, I guess when you say it out loud now, it does feel like maybe this is like a like a racial metaphor or something, like some sort of metaphor about like you know uh, people are people, or you know if if you get underneath the skin, you'll you'll find we're all the same. I, I don't know. I've heard that floated yeah. as well. I don't know how much I buy into that. I mean, it feels just like a, I don't know, just some kooky idea that someone came up with in a writer's room and they said fuck it run with it we've got fucking less than a year to make this thing let's just go yeah but nevertheless i don't know yeah there because there is some stuff about nature and nurture and you know when given the opportunities is does he act you know on free will or is it just the survival of the fittest law of the jungle and you know there's some stuff to be taken away from that i don't know if he can necessarily uh have it correlate with any sort of social or political movement of the time you could maybe see that if you wanted to see it but i don't know if that was necessarily their intent uh but still uh again i i like the um the cast in this you know i like those two dudes from this island earth um i like the lady in this although i think it was interesting this is the only one where the lady is not a scientist she's just uh you know the wife of some dude and she's just along for the ride to basically seduce all the other dudes, you know, and like, and the creature a little bit. So mm-hmm. that, that was kind of weird. It felt like a downgrade for ladies in this one. Yeah. Um, there, there's also that scene where like she goes diving with them and like she goes so deep that she gets like, I forget exactly what they call it. They call it like the, the river madness or something like that. Like she goes yeah, so deep bends. underwater. Yeah. She like loses her mind. She went so deep it put her ass to sleep. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I mean, it's so it feels like a little bit of a step backwards in many ways. You know, the the makeup's not as good, the the lady's not as good, there's not as much the pacing of it's not as good, but there is stuff to like in this. Uh it's it, 
in my opinion, it's definitely the weakest of the three. Uh, but that being said, much like the other one where it's, yeah, not as good as the original, but there's still fun to be had. I think there's still fun to be had with this one. Um, you know, creature versus mountain lion will never not be fun. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, again, uh, and I like that ending. It's like you said, it's a, a, a bummer ending, but it is kind of open to interpretation. Like, you know, it's just him looking at the, the ocean longingly, wanting nothing more than to go back but knowing in his heart of hearts that he's he's been changed he can't breathe there anymore he can't go back so what does he do you know so you can take it in many ways whether he's he's gone down to the beach to commit suicide or he's just gonna sit sit there and contemplate his future maybe go join a circus sideshow or something but uh yeah I, i i like this movie um if you've never seen it, uh, check it out. This one was not shot in 3D, did not have the 3D option. So it was the only three of the bunch that didn't get the 3D, which, again, by this point, was the the, the craze was over, and, and people were just sick of setting up all these special cameras and shit. So no one was doing 3D anymore, which was probably fine. This That way they didn't have one less thing to worry about. But you would think without the emphasis on the 3D, they could have focused a little bit more on maybe some other aspects of it. But, again, felt like kind of a rush job. Um, but still a fun rush job, nevertheless. Yeah. Uh, a fun rush job that, you know, like I said before, I'd never seen, uh, although I was very excited as soon as I saw in the credits, cause I didn't even know coming into this, that it would be kind of a, this Island earth reunion. You know, that's a movie I didn't watch a ton of MST three K as a kid, but that, you know, that's the one from the movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's the one of all the MST stuff I, I probably saw, the most and, and really loved it. You know, I have great memories of of laughing at, you know, Cal and Exeter's adventures back then. Um, so if you are a fan of those dudes, you know, definitely see this and also be sure to pause the movie at 13 minutes and 30 seconds in the scene where those two guys are standing around on this boat in their little white shorts and you'll get treated to some of the craziest moose knuckle you'll ever see on film. I think that's what they call male camel toe, right? It's yeah. insane. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. You, you guys spied that as well. Um, I didn't but, pick up on it, but now I'll have to go back and look for it. Yeah, it's there. About 13 and a half minutes into this, you will be blown away. Uh, I saw it, too. It's about 13 and a half uh, inches as well. That's <laughs> right. A lot, of, yeah. a lot of length on these guys. Yeah, I felt, uh, I don't know. I, I got a, it, a little bit. Is it, uh, is it Rex Reason or Jeff Morrow smuggling plums? It, to be honest, depending on the, the moment in the scene, they're both featuring uh, down there. So it's it's such a real treat. Um, but speaking of dudes, I, you know, I also did want to talk about one dude real quick before we close out this episode, which is Rico Browning. You know, the guy that we mentioned is in the gill suit, because if you check out his Wikipedia page, guy had an amazing career that is so weirdly coincidental So the way that he got introduced into films was he was just working at this Wakula Springs, which is just like a nature reserve kind of a place that they filmed the first movie in. And, you know, the film crew showed up. They're just kind of scouting for locations. And the cameraman just asked, like, hey, because he was, you know, this guy was working there. They're like, hey, can you just swim in front of the camera so that we can kind of get a sense of the focus and the framing and stuff like that? You know, we're just testing out some shots. And he did that, and they're like, oh, we like the way that you swim. You want to be in this movie? And he's like, yeah, sure. So he becomes the gill man for these three movies. 
And then he goes on to be a, a movie producer, writer, director. You know, he co-wrote, co-produced, and directed, um, or not directed the film Flipper, but he co-wrote and co-produced the film Flipper in 1963, then wrote and directed a bunch of the Flipper TV series as well. And then we talked about him because much later in life, after, you know, doing some second unit directing on stuff like James Bond movies and a lot of, like, underwater scenes in 1970s movies, uh, after all that, he directed Mr. No Legs, that crazy cripple exploitation movie from 1978, okay. uh, you know, that had the famous tagline. Um, Cripples are the rats of humans. You guys remember that tagline? <laughs> um, so just it's what a wild career that like this guy who's just working at, at this nature reserve as kind of like a tour guide or whatever would have this lasting impact on film. And I think that his performance, and maybe, who knows, I don't know, I'm not a swimming expert, maybe you could have found another guy to swim just as good as Rico Browning in those suits, but maybe you couldn't have. I, I, don't, I really don't know. And it seems like a challenging thing to swim in those suits, and guy did a great job. So I, I just wanted to shout him out, and dude is still out there kicking it at age 92, still alive, you know, probably overlooking the Florida coast, if I had to guess, you know, probably mournfully looking out to sea but um, yeah cool guy <laughs> no yeah he is a very cool guy and from all accounts I've, I've i've unfortunately never met the man but um he was a staple at horror conventions and uh you know fan conventions throughout the years he was from what i understand very accessible never um you know, never saw a piece of creature merchandise he wasn't willing to sign or pose for pictures with people. Unfortunately, from what I've heard recently, and hopefully this episode doesn't put the nail in the coffin, but the man is, like you said, 92 and is in rapidly declining health. There's a lot of, um, I, I see a lot of things because he's so beloved in the monster community that, like, a lot in a lot of the monster groups that I, I'm on on Facebook and things like that, a lot of people are, um, you know, asking people to to send him cards and well wishes because I guess that really uh, brightens his spirit because he is unfortunately it sounds like he's kind of close to the end. But um, but yeah, from all accounts, uh, a very cool guy and like I said, a very affable and fan friendly guy because like you said, he kind of lucked into it and and as a guy who kind of lucked into it, I think he really appreciates the fandom that he's earned and. Um, and is really appreciative of fans, so that's really cool. Yeah, and, and what a crazy legacy to go from, you know, just guy at a at Wakula Springs, you know, to be directing I mean, directing second unit on a James Bond movie, that's pretty fucking cool, you know, stuff like that. And so yeah, yeah anyhow. And he, and he's one of the few, if not the only guy, maybe other than Henry uh, Mancini, who did the music in all three, to to work in all three movies. Of oh the yeah, future, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is his franchise more than anybody else's, I would say. Um, I also wanted to shout out one other dude, uh, which is you mentioned Millicent Patrick before. You know, she created the design, or you know, there's a lot of debate about who create fully created the, the design, but it seems most likely that she was most responsible for most of the design. Yeah, um, there's a great book, by the way, a Lady from the Black Lagoon written all about that subject if you ever are interested i am interested because what i learned this week that i did not know about the woman is that i mean she worked for disney for a long time in their animation department and, and did a whole lot of things you know she was not just the the black lagoon lady 
But the one thing that she did for Disney that blew me away is that she did the design for the Chernabog demon, which is if you've seen Disney's Fantasia in that Night at Bald Mountain segment where there's that really scary looking demon that's kind of like uh, kind of looks like the devil from Legend, but it's obviously it's animated and in my mind much more terrifying. That's one of those images that I think like every Halloween they would play like a like a Disney Halloween. A spooky cartoon kind of a thing on ABC, and I just remember catching that, you know, as at a young age, and I would have nightmares about that fucking Chernabog demon. I think I legit think it's one of the scariest uh, character designs ever. So, shout out to this woman who, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure if she's with us anymore. Uh, I'm guessing probably not, but um, no, she she died in 1998. Yeah, but incredible contributions. So check out her work. Um, you know, as for the actual movie. Uh, what you guys already said was completely right. You know, slow start, but, you know, the second half of this, especially like the last 20, 30 minutes, I think make up for it. You know, Gilman goes fucking hog wild in in this movie. And yeah, he does look weird on land with his dry skin. You know, it it does feel like somebody's going to get this boy some Jergens or something. And yeah, he is making weird pig noises in this for, (laughs) I don't know why he didn't seem to do that in the other movies. Um, But he's fucking... I, he's like a, a ball of fire in this movie. And, and I don't just mean that because he does the Vietnamese monk thing where he pours a shit ton of gasoline on himself and self-immolates. Just in that you know, final 20 minutes, dude is just tearing through this house. He's just ripping yeah. doors off their hinges. It's yeah. incredible. I think that, that stuff is the best stuff in all three of these movies for me is, is you know, as slow as it is to get there. I think this move, this series goes out with a bang because I, there's no action in the rest of this series that is at that kind of a high octane. I fucking love I that know. stuff. He flips a car over in the last one. He does flip a car, but man, I thought he was going to just completely push this house over. Like he's <laughs> crashing through walls. He's doing a Kool-Aid man virtually. It's it's insane. So I, I don't know. I, I loved all that stuff. Um and I, yeah, I feel a, you know, a little bit of a regret in that I watched all three of these back to back. I think probably the smart way, if I was going to do this again, would be watch the original. You know, especially if it's been a long time since you've seen it, take a break, and then you know, watch these other two as a double feature. I think is smart because otherwise, you know, in the sequels, you're probably going to be comparing them to the original. And as a whole, none of these sequels are as good as that original. But I, I think there's a lot of fun in in both of them. And, and I appreciate the fact that, um, you know, that they're very different, you know, in their approaches that this one is a little bit more serious. And I think they were trying to get, you know, a little bit deeper with some of the themes and, and it kind of falls on its face in that regard, but then it turns into a, almost a slasher at the end, which is fucking cool. So, um, yeah, I, I love this theme show I, of all the, uh, trilogy shows that we've done over the years. I don't know, this, this might have been one of my favorites to, to watch these three I, in a week was a lot of fun. So Gilman, nice. still still chill man in my book. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I like it anytime we do uh, three movies from a franchise in a theme show, and this was uh, particularly fun because I mean I, I I mean it seems like this one has a lot more continuity between the three than a lot of the other ones we watched. Like I feel like. By part three, Frankenstein was already kind of going in weird places. And uh, like the second time the Wolfman shows up, he's with Abbott and Costello. <laughs> and like, I feel like he died at the end of part one. So like, 
a lot of the other ones, I, I don't know. I feel like don't have very good continuity, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I haven't seen enough, but this one you can follow one to three pretty easy. And I like, it's fun to watch for that reason. Yeah. Uh, for among, sure. among many other reasons. Yeah. And like you said, this is this movie, the creature walks among us does signal the end of what is considered the classic universal monsters era. As every any anything after this is not considered in that realm, so it is the end of an era in a lot of ways. R.I.P. Universal Monsters. Indeed. Well, that wraps it up for the creature. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to take off some of our gills and scales and show that we have normal human skin underneath. So stick around. Stuck to this creature like an old harpoon But he fled, leaving me a broken heart How I loved to caress him when I thought he cared I'd press my fingers to his scaly hide But he gave up the happiness we might have shared And in fin, treading water side by side Oh, I'll never forget We were splashing along While the band played our song My water wings were filled with love for him When upon this slimy bounder Spied a young flirtatious flounder And left me there To sink or swim How I pine for the creature From the black lagoon Though his return is but a futile wish And I'm left with the echo of our favorite tune And the faintly lingering fragrance of fish The eel, the heel, the trout, the lout, the cod, the claw Creature from the black all right, well, that just about wraps it up for episode 622 of Junk Food Dinner, our creature from the Black Lagoon episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. If you are enjoying the show and you want to go back in the archives and dig a little deeper, there's only one place to do that, and that is at our website, junkfooddinner.com. There you can find all of our previous episodes, all 622 of them, easily chronicled for your listening pleasure, as well as links to all of our social media. And you know we are on the social media from the Facebook, the Twitters, the Instagram, and, of course, the Discord, where you can chat it up with us in real time and let us know what you think about the show and all manner of other things. Also on the website, very important, you can also vote for what you would like to see as our 1700th movie. As you know, every 100 movies on the show, we do a full-length audio commentary, and that is what we're asking you to go to our website and vote on. Uh, is it going to be Santo and the Blue Demon against the Monsters from 1927? Is it going to be Blood Beach from 1981? Is it going to be Spider-Man from 1977? Is it going to be The Love Bug from 1997? Rhinestone from 84? Or Trog from 1970? The choice is yours. Go to our site and vote. 
uh, and uh, get your votes in early and often because we're going to be picking the winner here shortly. And that is a, the film that we are going to do a full-length audio commentary for. So if you want to hear us talk about one of these at length, go to junkfoodinner.com and vote. Uh, if you want even more junk food dinner in your life, uh, the podcast once a week isn't enough for you. You're hungry for more. Well, good news. For a little bit of dough, you can get more junk food dinner by going to patreon.com slash junkfooddinner. For $5 a month or more, you can get a monthly bonus episode of Junk Food Desserts, uh, as well as access to the complete archives of Junk Food Desserts, which are now uh, like 50-plus deep. We got more bonus episodes than most podcasts have regular episodes, and it's all available at patreon.com. Or for $10 a month or more, you can uh, be a Dom, big shot, Dom DeLuise Patreon donor, and pick the flicks that we do once a month on our Dom DeLuise patreon picks episode so that's a lot of fun make sure you go and check out patreon and see if there's something there that works for you and your budget uh next week it is one of our patented shorts week where we're going to be taking a look at bedhead from 1991 time warped from 1995 and legends of the superheroes from 1979 so that should be a lot of fun make sure you tune in for that but until next time, this is Kevin Moss for Parker Bowman and Sean Byron saying adios, everybody. We'll see you next time. We don't entirely rule out the possibility that there might be some form of life on another planet. Then why not some entirely different form of life in a world we already know is inhabited by millions of living creatures? We must have the proof.